I'm Bedroth. And I'm the Dyad. I'm a lawyer. And I'm not. And you're joining us in... The the Movie movie Bar. Bar. Well, I am definitely eager to talk about this movie with you. Uh, Before we get into it, though, I do want to issue a disclaimer. This is... The movie itself is probably the most um, adult-themed movie that we have seen so far. Uh, Maybe one of the most that we'll ever see. Uh, There is um, quite a bit of profanity. Uh, There Mm -hmm. is graphic violence. Uh, There is full frontal nudity and sexual content. And uh, it also touches on religious themes that could be triggering for some people. Um, People of very different backgrounds, actually, could find some of the things in this movie triggering for religious or spiritual reasons. So, uh, There's also a a call-out of Donald Trump's name, too. So you got politics, too. Yeah, yeah. it's got it all in there. So, um, but yeah, for October of 2022, for this episode posting, hopefully, uh, on Halloween, October 31st, uh, in the United States, we decided to go with um, not the movie that I actually originally thought about that I wanted to watch next. We put that one back on on the docket for another month. But I went with what may be the only supernatural legal thriller <laughs> out there, at least the only one that I know of. Uh, did I add, what are, what are we going to be talking about this month? We watched 1997's Devil's Advocate. What do you think? Some people can't handle it. It's peaceful. My sentiments, exactly. <laughs> so fill in the resume for me. Tell me, uh, your family, your father, what does he do? I never got to know my father. He passed away before I was born. My mother raised me. Just the two of us. She never remarried? She wasn't married the first time. Well, that can't be easy in a town like Gainesville, can it? I don't think it's easy anywhere. She's a preacher's daughter. She's tough. She's worked at the same poultry plant for as long as I can remember. She's got a church she really likes, so she's usually either there or they go out. They do a lot of volunteer work. Behold, I send you out as sheep amidst the wolves. So they say. I didn't rub off the book, the church? No, I'm on parole. Early release for time served. <laughs> Starring Keanu Reeves, Al Pacino, um, Coach again. We got yep. the Pacino and Coach pairing again. Yeah, we also have Charlie Theron again. Oh, right, right, another, right, right. Yep. Another returner, frequent so, flyer. Yeah, yeah. We will we will get into the uh, the actors as we and as we go and talk about their characters. But but yeah, um, this movie <laughs> this was really something. It didn't have quite as much law stuff, at least courtroom stuff, as I initially expected. What did you? Um, your your initial reaction as far as uh, what you might have expected coming into this movie versus what you got when you actually watched it. What do you think? So I knew almost nothing about the movie. I knew that it was a law movie and that the devil was in it. So in, in my mind, I had just like over the years, maybe like assumed that maybe the devil was in a lawsuit getting defended or something. And, I'm not sure. So I was kind of 
waiting for this to all unfold and I wasn't sure how it was going to go, but I kind of knew enough that I was constantly like waiting, looking for clues or whatever. But uh, it ended up being so completely different than I was expecting that I was uh, kind of, <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure, kind of just like dumbstruck at parts of the movie, I guess. What about you? You just described almost my exact um, experience with the movie. I also knew next to nothing about it. Um, I knew the devil was in it, and it was a legal film, and I didn't know which character was the devil, although it, I'd say it becomes fairly obvious pretty early on. Um, mm-hmm. I, I also was looking for clues and listening for clues all the way through the movie, and I picked up on, on a lot. Um, I don't remember if we've talked much about your... Um, upbringing with regards to to religion or the church or anything like that Uh, i may have mentioned it here and there i know i've talked about it on my other podcasts but um i grew up in a denomination of christianity that took spiritual warfare pretty seriously uh we didn't speak in tongues or call out demons or do any like exorcisms or uh spiritual healings or anything like that in my church but we did believe that um uh, Satan is an individual figure, um, a uh, spirit set against the will of God, although not equal to God, and that Satan had demons who were other fallen angels and were supernatural beings that existed and moved on the spiritual realm and could interact with the physical realm in some ways, although they could not directly harm, uh, physically harm Christians, people who were covered with the blood of Jesus. And so it was kind of always in the back of our minds. It wasn't something that anybody ever sort of like talked about day to day. Um, but it was just sort of an understood thing, like a lot of doctrine in, in religion. One of those things that now that I'm out of it, I look at it, of course, with a much greater deal of skepticism than I did. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm, I'm thoroughly agnostic these days and uh, tend to not put a whole lot of stock in things existing beyond what we can ascertain scientifically uh, by observation. But this movie still gave me the heebie-jeebies just because of how much baggage I've got in that area. (laughs) I shouldn't laugh, but I guess maybe just you used the word heebie-jeebies there. I was, I, once we got like, pretty deep into the movie, I started to think that this would have been a good one to uh, tap Prof Jeff to be an expert witness for because uh, I'm sure he would have had some insight or or at least interesting takeaways or thoughts on on the movie. Well, you know what? Um, (laughs) We can talk about this next year, but since there aren't a whole lot of supernatural uh, legal films out there, I wonder if we might not make this movie an annual thing. Uh, you actually mentioned to me <laughs> right before we started recording that this is not a movie you had a great deal of interest in uh, re-experiencing. But uh-huh. maybe even for that reason, it might be something worth <laughs> oh coming God. back to just like <laughs> every year. Like put ourselves how, through um, this one again. my brother, my brother and me rewatches um, Paul Blart Mall Cop 2. Paul, yes. Paul Blart Mall Cop, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, something like that. And next year, maybe we can bring Prof Jeff on because I I do think also that this movie, the way that it's written and shot, there is 
you will get new things out of every viewing as far as ways that the director is like tipping his hand as far as what's going uh-huh. on and who's who and all that. So yeah. in that instance, it was a really intriguing and in that way, a pretty entertaining film. But I will have some other comments about things as we go along. So uh, anything else you want to mention here for the intro? Um, no, I don't think so. I don't, uh, I don't think I have much more. All right. Well, uh, for anybody who is joining us for the first time, um, I recommend going back to one of our other episodes. I think this one might be a little bit different because of some of the subject matter. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if, if you're here and you want to stick with it, then welcome. Thank you for joining us. Please tell your friends. We have been growing steadily in the uh, in the numbers on, on Anchor. So uh, thank you all for spreading the word and for checking out the show. Um, what we usually do here is we review slash uh, analyze movies, uh, legal films, me from the perspective of just a layman, um, you know, average guy, and the dyad from the perspective of a legal expert, because as you heard in the intro, he is a lawyer. So we will be talking about The Devil's Advocate, and at the end of the show, I will give it uh, a rating out of five stars as far as how much I would recommend a movie or how good a movie I think it is or whatever I decide to categorize that as this week, this month. And the dyad will give it a, a uh, well, tell them what you do. <laughs> I will, uh, I, I, I hate to say guilty or innocent, but I, I mean, guess that's kind of where we're at. Guilty <laughs> or not guilty on how closely it, it uh, represents the, the legal field. And yeah, as we go, uh, we will both sort of go back and forth talking about uh, the story. And then periodically, the dyad will jump in with an observation about something that happens um, legally in the movie. Or I'll jump in with an observation about something else. And we'll just kind of make our way through the plot. So... Yeah, as you mentioned, uh, The Devil's Advocate is 1997 American supernatural horror film. Uh, this film was directed by Taylor Hackford, uh, written by Jonathan Limpkin and Tony Gilroy. It stars Keanu Reeves as Kevin Lomax, uh, Charlize Theron as his wife, Marianne Lomax, and it stars Al Pacino as New York City. Uh, well, lawyer and head of, um, of a major law firm, John Milton, uh, one of uh, the first of many references to uh, uh, different literature and um, popular culture and scripture dealing with uh, the devil, Satan, Lucifer, whatever you'd like to call him. He has many names, as he says in this film. <laughs> That's true. And uh, yeah, so first of all, a little bit of background here. Um, I found this kind of interesting. This movie was actually, it was based on a book um, written by Andrew Niederman. And the book is fairly different from the movie. Uh, it has um, a, a very oh, interesting. Uh, the major plot points are the same, but some of the the plot twists and things like that are, um, are a little bit different or missing entirely. Uh, Joel Schumacher was actually in early talks to direct this film with Brad Pitt playing the part of Kevin Lomax. Uh, but they hmm. had trouble uh, finding an actor to play the, uh, the character who is eventually revealed to be Satan. Um, and so the movie kind of went on and on, uh, actually, even after a director was, was eventually found, um, 
Al Pacino was apparently approached several times for the role of Milton, and uh, he rejected it um, at least three times before enough, enough rewrites came around that he finally felt like he had something he could work with. And um, I will say, he is, uh, as always, he is pretty riveting in this film. Yeah. I, um, nothing against Keanu Reeves. I actually like Keanu Reeves just fine, but I think Brad Pitt would have been a, would have done a far better job in this role. In this role in particular, I think so. Um, one thing that I have to say, <laughs> uh, so the, uh, the Lomaxes are from Gainesville, Florida. Oh, God. And, uh, <laughs> um, uh, Lomax is a defense attorney who has um, a perfect record, similar to some other characters that we've seen throughout this uh, this series. And mm-hmm. we actually open up in a um, in a trial that is um, also a little bit triggering. Uh, trigger warning here: there is um, uh, the first trial has to do with um, a sex crime perpetrated against a minor. So for anybody who does not want to hear about that, I would fast forward probably about 10 minutes. I don't think we're going to spend more than about more than that much time on this introduction. But uh, my, my, my first comment about Reeves here is um, I also like Keanu Reeves. He cannot do a Southern accent. At least he cannot was, do it. Yeah, yeah. He, he can't do it steadily. Yeah. <laughs> no. In fact, he's not the only offender in this movie. I have... I actually, I, I was looking through my notes and I wrote it down in two different places. A lot of bad accents in this movie. Yeah. Uh, Theron leans way too much into hers in a couple of places and also just then mm-hmm. sometimes it's it's almost not there at all. Uh, yeah. The, <laughs> the yeah. accents. And P- Pacino's southern the, accent is just terrible. Yeah, even when the accent is pretty good, um, or even when the acting is pretty good, the accents are, yeah, just just not good. I don't even remember when Pacino spoke with a Southern accent, so that's... Uh, no, he didn't. He was um, he was heavy New York the whole time. I was just joking. Okay, th- thank you. I thought maybe maybe at one point he did it to like to, to, to mimic uh, somebody and like... Actually, you know what? He did. He does a Keanu Reeves impression at the very end, and I laughed really hard. I thought it was like pretty good, actually. Right in their final confrontation. You know, I like don't want to forget. A sentence or two. I don't two. want to forget about that. So I'm going to say, I thought that they had taken Keanu's voice and dubbed it over Pacino talking. Do you think they did that or do you think that was actually all Pacino? It's funny that you say that because I had that same question. And, <coughs> excuse me, I, um, I almost went back and, and re rewatched it to see if, but I, I don't know that I would have necessarily been able to tell, but uh, maybe some looking into it. I wonder, yeah, yeah. I wonder, let's see. Well, I, I will also say here at this point, um, if if you have not watched this movie, I, I, I definitely suggest that you watch it before you listen, just because this movie is kind of bonkers and it's going to, be confusing enough uh, if we um, it, it, I don't know I feel like we're going to bounce around a little bit and it's going to be even more confusing if you haven't seen the movie but that's just me what do you think yeah I think um, yeah it would be it's just like it's a this one is much more of a challenge to listen in on if you haven't seen the movie I think it, it is it is less like a linear storytelling legal drama yeah. and more just I don't know, horror movie, right? I guess. 
yeah, it really, it's, it's kind of, it's supernatural horror is what kind of probably where I would put it. But okay. So we started. Oh, wait, hold Gainesville. on a second. I've got an oh, answer go for you. According to Roger Ebert from an article in 1997, answering a fan question about whether or not Al Pacino is lip syncing or imitating Keanu Reeves. He says it's even more devilishly complex. A Warner Brothers source says Al Pacino is not imitating Keanu Reeves voice, nor is he lip syncing to a playback. Instead, Pacino spoke the original lines during production. Later Reeves during post-production post-production looped the lines, spoke them matching his voice to Pacino's original lip movements. So it is in fact Keanu Reeves voice. Oh, so it is it's, it is actually a dub and not a lip sync. That's correct. Yeah. Because he, Reeves went back over and that's Yeah, went back and that's crazy. Whatever. That's crazy. Um All right, but yeah, so we're in Gainesville and uh Lomax is representing a um a school teacher, Lloyd Geddes, mm-hmm. uh, who I don't have the actor pulled up here, but it doesn't really matter. He's not in the movie very much. Um, although the actor does a pretty good job of being a creep. Um, yeah. He is a math teacher who is charged with, um, uh, I don't know what the actual official charge is, but he um, molested a teenager is uh, mm-hmm. what what happened. And... Um, through the the course of just the brief interaction we see Reeves um, uh, Lomax realizes that the, the guy is definitely guilty and he asks for a recess uh, goes and takes a quick break and kind of psychs himself up and then comes back and um, he destroys the victim's credibility and gets a non-guilty verdict and that's kind of our introduction to his his courtroom style uh, the way he thinks on his feet and the way that he will, um, well, actually, the way that he will do what we have seen up to this point is a lawyer's job. He gets yeah. the, you know, he gets the verdict that he is supposed to try to get for his client. Mm-hmm. Although in this movie, it's presented as kind of selling out to, uh, <laughs> selling out yeah. to evil um, in the name of his job. Have you had any discipline problems in math class this year? No. No? Isn't it true Mr. Geddes has had to talk to you repeatedly about your behavior? Isn't that why he asked you to stay after class? No. Have other teachers ever asked you to stay after class? Once or twice. Did they want to talk to you about your behavior? Objection. Immaterial. Goes to motive. Overruled. You may answer the question. Well, I don't know what the other teachers wanted. You'd have to talk to them. You ever pass notes in class, Barbara? Maybe a note that made fun of Mr. Geddes. No. No? Never called him a disgusting pig monster? Order. No. Your Honor, I pre-marked this defense exhibit A. Objection. Your Honor, we've had plenty of time for discovery here. I'm going to let this in, Mr. Lomax. I'm also going to suggest that if you have any other exhibits you present in a timely fashion or not at all. I'm sorry, Barbara, I was wrong. It's huge hog beast. (laughs) This is your handwriting, isn't it? Yes. You wrote this in Mr. Getty's class. It's a joke. He's a huge hog beast. 
he probably eats a thousand pancakes for breakfast. You're writing here about Mr. Gettys, aren't you? It was meant to be a joke. Have you ever had a party at your house, Barbara? When your parents were away? Objection. Your Honor, this is way out of Credibility line. and bias. Overruled. Answer the question. Have you ever heard of a game called Special Places? You're under oath, Barbara. A man's career, his reputation, his life is on the line. This is not a joke. Have you ever played the game Special Places? We only played it once. This special party, Barbara. This was the first time you told the story about Mr. Gettys, wasn't it? Yes. I've spoken to some of the other children who were there that day. Can you think of anything else, Barbara? They might have told me about Objection. that party. Your Honor, if he has other witnesses, let him call. If I need to call those other children, I will. Sustain that, Mr. Lomax. Rephrase your question. You threatened those children, didn't you? That's not the way it happened. You told them to lie, to falsely claim that Mr. Geddes had hurt them. These things did happen. Because if they didn't go along, you were going to tell everyone about this special party. They happened to me. So you made up a story, a special story, a story about a math teacher who was tough on you, who kept you after class, a huge hog beast you didn't like. That's what really happened, isn't it? No. I didn't want to be the only one. <laughs> you got damn old son of a bitch. You got damn old son of a bitch. I have no further questions, Your Honor. I'm going to adjourn here for today. We'll be back here at nine o'clock in the morning, and people will behave themselves here or find themselves in contempt. I want to point out something before we get too far from that. But that's our, our introduction. And then, yeah, since, since this is actually a trial, I'm sure you did. You have some stuff here. So go ahead. So even even without getting into the trial aspect, I just well, I guess this kind of it kind of does have a, a legal point of view on it. But I, I wanted to point out that when he when when uh, Lomax is he's he's in the court and it's basically the defendant's mannerisms and some things that he's doing clues him in that. He just it clicks for him that he probably did commit this crime, and he gets really angry and takes this recess because the client lied to him and uh, I guess did not tell him that he did it, and so he's kind of I, I mean like you get the impression at least I did that he's upset that he's you know he agreed to accept this person that was guilty without you know with without full knowledge of that going forward. And so I thought, took that to be uh, maybe maybe this Lomax character is starting out from a place of good intentions or, you know, this is like a positive character trait. Like he's he's upset about being duped by this defendant. And it's not he to say that he about, wouldn't have represented him, but. Yeah. Yeah. And he is upset about being duped by him, but he also he also is disgusted at, at the guy's right, behavior. Exactly, uh, exactly. At one point, he um, th- they're talking. I think they're talking briefly during the recess. And, and he says, you know, as your lawyer, I'm going to advise you not to put your hands on me. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like yeah, basically, yeah. don't don't touch me. <laughs> get, get off yeah. me. Um, but, 
Yeah. So I actually spotted a couple of things that I have learned from um, the things I've learned from you in this show. Okay. Uh, yeah. I want to hear it because I, b- I bet you got some of the ones I wrote down. Let's hear. What do well, you got? The big one um, that we see and we're going to continue to see in all these movies is uh, the lawyers like approaching and leaning on the, the jury exactly. stand. Yeah. Um, Approaching the That's witness and just note, really like fact. leaning in, putting their hands on the witness stand, um, and just getting in the in the, the witness's face, stuff that you just you know you don't do. And also, um, a little thing that we talked about last time with the uh, the Phoenix Wright episode, which quick brief shout out to uh, Jason and the team over at uh, Multimedia Failure uh, for that awesome crossover. If you haven't checked it out, go listen to it. It was a lot of fun, but. Um, Phoenix Wright, of course, one of the big things is objections, and there are a couple mm-hmm. of objections in this uh, scene that are not done correctly, but I'll let you elaborate on that. Oh, you mean like the speaking objection where they end up just like, you know, having a big tirade after their objection? Well, yeah, yeah like there's one where it's like, um, uh, objection, your honor, this, uh, this has, yeah. you know... Um, if he wants to blah, 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 call other witnesses, then and at one point the judge just says objection and it doesn't really say anything else or sorry, the lawyers, uh, the uh, prosecutor says objection, doesn't really say anything else. And the judge just says overruled without hearing what the objection was for. Um, <laughs> anyway, but I'll, I'm sure you've got some notes. And so I'd like to, I've been talking a lot already in the episode. I'd like to hear from sure. you for a bit. <laughs> so I, I, it, you, you're learning, you're learning some, at least some of my pet peeves. Because starting off, the movie opens with the victim, in this case, testifying. And it's the the shot is on her, like kind of a close-up. And then as soon as it zooms out at all, you can see the prosecutor is standing right next to her, leaning on like the witness stand and like getting <laughs> real close. And mm. um, like you said, frequent listeners will know that I that's... Um, not really, uh, not really how it works. You're not really supposed to get up in their business like that. Um, yeah. the, you, you also mentioned the weird objections, which a lot of kind of objection and then continuing to talk about stuff, which is not good. It's supposed to be, should be objection. And then, you know, you state, state your basis and then wait for your ruling. And that should be it. I would say that this is not as egregious as uh, Phoenix Wright was, but um, (laughs) still what I would say is probably improper. And um, another thing that we've seen before is in this case, he, uh, I'm going to start coming up with like cute names for these, these issues. I, I like the, you are now free to move about the courtroom rule because they're always walking around. And I don't know what the bringing evidence from home is going to be called, but Keanu Reeves has some note or something that this victim wrote, like a, a mean note that she passed in class that was describing oh, yeah, the teacher unfavorably. Yeah. And he just like pulls it out of his pocket and is like, I got some evidence, judge. And the prosecution is like, well, I haven't seen it. I object. And the judge was like, no, I'm going to, I want to see it. But next time, make sure you follow the rules. Um, so I don't think... <laughs> don't think that would happen but i mean it's yeah. actually it made it um worse for me because i i don't remember exactly what the judge said but it was something to the extent of 
well, that doesn't follow the rules of procedure, but I'm going to allow it. And I was just like, what? Yeah, he's like, I'm going you, to allow this, but uh-huh. in the future, make sure that you submit your evidence in a timely right. manner. <laughs> right, exactly. And, um, yeah, so I, that, that was that was no good. Um, I do have, like, I feel like I've got a lot of notes right up at the beginning. I, this is a really strange one, but so when we mentioned he takes this break. Well, he, and, and, again, I will say just kind of in, in explanation of that, uh, there there aren't a whole lot of courtroom scenes in this movie. No, that's true. So, that's true. So, yeah, uh, this this is a good way to kind of set the stage, and this is where you're going to get a lot of your meat in on this on this scene. That is true. So, uh, so you, we mentioned that uh, Lomax calls this recess and um it's because basically because he's angry and he needs to cool off and he goes into the bathroom of this historic courthouse and i just wanted to point out that that is a very accurate like old-timey courthouse bathroom and i have been in a bathroom (laughs) similar to that a few times with like the marble and the big high dividers like that and Mm -hmm. a lot of times they have these like really weird old technology sinks that I've like not, never even sure how to use like you gotta pump your feed and pull something and um yeah, yeah that was a uh, that was very that was accurate to some old-timey courthouses that I've been in uh in Florida no less uh so then going back also, jumping back uh, to the trial <laughs> oh go ahead I also want to point out in in the bathroom um there is a uh there's a reporter in there and this is how we find out that that oh, right, has never right. lost a case there's a reporter in the bathroom who comes in and uh d- does his business and you know is talking while he's peeing is like you know well you know uh you, you can't win them all. Eventually, uh, all good runs come to an end. And um, the guy leaves without washing his hands. <laughs> that, that just, <laughs> I, I did that just jumped that. out at me. But I'll, uh, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll come back to, to him a little bit later on as well. But yeah, I wanted to mention that. So that, that dovetails nicely to one of the next things, which is another one of my pet peeves, is the undefeated attorney. And he mentions that. And not not only is he undefeated, but he we find out later in the movie he was a prosecutor and a defense attorney, and he's just miraculously never lost a case for either side. And I, I just feel like there's got to be a better way to show in your movies that your your attorney is good at being an attorney because people just no, nobody never loses a case, especially yep. not as a defense attorney, I would think, and especially as. He has a a reputation, or he he does not let himself uh, make plea deals. At least as a prosecutor, I think it comes out when he's t- he's talking about his past. And for someone as a defense attorney to always go to trial and never lose is is honestly is just ridiculous. <laughs> I, I mean, unless you were somehow extremely selective in your case. I mean, it just I don't. Or unless uh, you had some sort of. Some sort of latent supernatural power. Right. Yeah. I guess if you were, <laughs> yeah, I don't want to spoil it too much, but if you had some sort of <laughs> connection yeah. and <laughs> right. he's got a natural 20 on his charisma roll. <laughs> uh, so then we get back, he gets back into the trial and he's doing his cross examination of this witness and he's just like really aggressive and getting in her face. And I, I mean that both literally and figuratively like going in front of her and like screaming in her face and being <laughs> just going far far and above above and and beyond what would be 
acceptable in a cross-examination. And this is like 15 um, I mean, or 16-year-old like, girl who is obviously yeah, distraught. Yeah, yeah. And like I get the the at its core, the premise I think is accurate where you want to sort of pepper questions and get your your opposing witness uh, kind of like off balance and and sort of flustered that get them flustered and, and whatever and um, even being like somewhat aggressive I think is also would would not be so outrageous but like you know literally yelling you know raising your voice yelling like I, I just I'm not a trial Did lawyer you but catch that at one point he actually holds up the letter that you mentioned so that the jurors can see what's on the letter. I did. Yeah. I, so he, <laughs> he walks over and So this one, when they start doing that, I mean, like it seemed like they were making that intentional, like he was pulling a trick, which is going over to the jury box and letting the jury see, see this letter before he has introduced it into evidence or tried to introduce it into evidence. What I thought was going to happen is I thought the judge was going to keep it out. And so I thought this was his trick to get the jury to see the letter, even though he knew that it wouldn't have been admitted. And I thought that that would have been like a good way to show an underhanded and bad trick for an attorney to do. But then instead the judge is like, that's nah, fine. Got anything else? What else do you need? Yeah, bud? That would have made more sense. Yeah. <laughs> Um, one thing that in his questioning when he's wearing down this witness and I'm, I, I try to write down the, the phrasing, but he's talking about, so he's, he's essentially trying to get her to confess that she made up these accusations that they're just, she was angry at her, her teacher. And so she Mm -hmm. made up this story and he's talking about, they went to some, sleepover or something and Keanu Reeves is talking about going and talking to the rest of the girls at the sleepover and I was kind of wondering if they were going to get some sort of hearsay issue here and he asked her can you I talked to your friends can you think of anything they might have told me and I was trying to decide I think that that is actually a fair question and maybe even a good one because you're not saying uh you know like your friend told me this he's kind of trying to get her to admit to something by like invoking his friends and i i think that that would be a fair and clever way to you know elicit this response from her so i thought that possibly could have been a good thing but then, yeah, I feel, um, I feel like at the very least, like you said, the way that he phrased it, it would have been a gray area, which makes it interesting that this is the one objection that the judge actually sustains for the prosecution. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And uh, and then, like, kind of bringing this home, he he asks her a question and she says no. And then he keeps asking her questions that she keeps saying no to, but, like, more and more and more on this. And again, I'm not a trial lawyer, but I am, I'm fairly sure that once you ask this question and she says no, and then you ask another question that is substantially similar to that or even kind of builds on that, 
I believe that that is something that's already been answered and the opposing party can object like you just she just answered that question and no more and that would kind of shut it down but instead he keeps peppering her and getting more and more and more until he berates a uh basically i don't i i wasn't exactly clear on to what yeah. she confessed to but yeah it's not explicit um but it, it, what what is obvious is that in, in he won he wins the trial i mean he wins the not guilty right. verdict so whatever she she ends up saying after the, that scene cuts out um you know it incriminates or it undermines her testimony so right. the jury yeah. goes so with yeah. the teacher in, in the end like you said he is sufficiently uh you know undermined her and then the verdict for the defendant and uh and uh, Lomax is out of there. And uh, I did actually pick up on uh, Lloyd Geddes, the math teacher, is played by Chris Bauer, who apparently has a couple of um, fairly major roles to his name. Uh, he plays Frank yeah, in him. The Wire. Yep, yep. And he is in um, a lot of episodes as the character of Andy Bellaflor in True Blood. So. I have not seen True Blood, but I I did recognize him, and I think he plays. I think he has a couple of like bit parts and things too. Yeah, he has a lot of of bit parts. He looks like he's kind of a character actor um, across TV yeah. and film. So he looks and, like a, a blockheaded creepo. So he he that's good role for him. Yeah, definitely very much so. So, <clears throat> um, but yeah, so. We then move to a scene in a church. Uh, this just um, I, I, I'm going to assume Southern Baptist, like rural Southern Baptist church uh, in in Florida, it could be could be almost anything. But it's definitely it's either fundamentalist or something in the charismatic area, based on um, based on what they're doing. I'm. It's not mainline evangelical because, frankly, it's too uh, um, it's too heterogeneous in the congregation. The, there are, there are black people and white people all kind of worshiping together. But it is a small, like one room sanctuary church, and uh, mm-hmm. um, we wonder why this why this guy's here. It turns out his mom is uh, a, a member of this church, which we find out later is active in the community. They do a lot of um, outreach and volunteer work, and his mom is definitely a um, a uh, card carrying Jesus freak um, in you know in good <laughs> and bad ways. Um, but, Doesn't he linger uh, outside too? Does he actually go inside? I can't remember if it's this church or not. I think he's like in the back. Uh, he's not like in the congregation, which they're singing this <laughs> this old worship song that took me back to like early, early, early church camp that I used to go to. Um, it, I actually found it really funny because I thought it was like a children's worship song, but they've got these adults singing it. So maybe maybe that's just a, a case of the, the director and the, the filmmakers not really knowing much and just kind of plucking a song out of obscurity and that's what they're singing. But I don't know. I just mm-hmm. thought that was an interesting side note. But yeah, he's, I think at the back of the church, but he doesn't stay very long. And then he kind of, kind of um, walks out and waits outside. Um, and we get a hint of uh, some tension between, um, I totally skipped over a scene. Um, well, I'll go ahead and finish it out, though. We get a hint of some, hint of some tension between uh, Kevin's mother, uh, Alice, who is played 
by um, Judith Ivy and his wife, um, Marianne, who is played by Charlize Theron, um, that she's like a, a worldly woman that his mom thinks is not good for him. And, you know, she's a holy roller. Um, and um, Marianne, for her part, doesn't seem to care any ill will for, for his mom. She actually kind of wants to, uh, you know, wants to get in, in, into her good graces and starts talking about how we, they better give her a grandbaby soon. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I did skip over a scene. Um, after the, uh, the not guilty verdict, they, um, Kevin goes with his colleagues, one of whom apparently is his wife. I don't, I don't know. I think, you could talk about that in a second, but they go to, to this bar and have kind of a party. Oh, right. Celebrate. And while they're there, uh, Kevin is approached by um, <clears throat> by Lehman Heath, uh, played by Ruben Santiago Hudson, uh, a man who comes up to him, gives him a card with the name of the law firm on it. And I'm trying to find it in my notes here. Do you have the name of the law firm in the notes? No, well, let me see if I have it open. I don't think so. No, well, but it's, like it's it's Milton Waters, Milton something or other. But yeah, but we'll we'll call it Milton's Law Firm. So he has the the card right. for Milton's Law Firm, um, and. Uh, at first, Kevin thinks that somebody's playing a trick on him, or it's like you know, there it's no way. But basically, um, Heath is offering him an all expenses paid trip to New York to help them just to help them select a jury for a mm-hmm. trial. And which he I will just say, him a check I believe for, that happens. I, I okay. think that's not a not a ridiculous proposition. So I'll, I uh, I will call that a, a positive because uh, I believe that there are you know. For your super major cases, there are selection specialists that may come on just for that. I think that's a real thing. Okay, cool. Cool. But yeah, he's chosen because of his um, immaculate uh, uh, record, supposedly, um, to come in. And he's apparently, he, he shows him this check of uh, obscene proportions, <laughs> evidently, and says, you and your wife are invited to come and we'll pay for the trip as long as it takes and uh, we just want you to help us pick a jury and so he goes to the church to say goodbye to his mom before they they leave for the trip and uh, his mother refers to a a verse out of revelation um that and compares new york city to uh to the babylon of um christian eschatology or end times uh, theology and uh which is Definitely not out of the ordinary for any major city, but especially in America, places like New York and L.A. to be compared to the biblical Babylon, um, which is like a city infested with with evil and uh, and demons and Satan's influence. And so um, one of our first clues here, uh, but also um, I wanted to point out a couple of things. Uh, the color blue starts to pop up around this time in the mm-hmm. film and is especially associated, I think with Marianne, uh, Shirley Theron's character and, um, Kevin's wife. So we'll come back in on that. I'm going to talk about colors a little bit as we go on, but yeah. they, they go to New York and they, we see this jury selection scene. So I thought that you might want to want to talk about that a little bit. Yes. So <clears throat> I, um, I don't think it's, clear exactly what the case is about but there is 
some older, more stuffy lawyer, and he is conducting the voir dire of the witnesses, and he's, which is, uh, basically it's when you're kind of talking to potential jurors and vetting them and, uh, using your strikes, excusing jurors for either for cause or for, uh, what's called a, like a peremptory challenge, which you just, you usually get a certain number of just for whatever reason you want. Well, not for whatever reason, but for almost any reason you want, get them off of the jury. And the, the older guy is, you know, talking to people and he comes over to consult with, with Lomax. And, uh, what was the other guy's name? The other character who recruited him? Uh, his name is Lehman Heath. Lehman. That's right. So he's talk, comes over to talk to Lehman and, and Lomax just kind of rattles off. No, you, you want to get rid of these three. And, and the older guy pushes back against him. He's like, are you crazy? Why would you say that? And then Lomax gives his kind of like Sherlock Holmesian, well, I noticed his shoes were polished and uh, anyone who polishes their shoes is clearly uh, whatever. All right, Mr. Clintine, let me ask you this. Do you think as a juror you would be able to set aside any prior opinion you might hold about the savings and loan industry? That was a question, sir. What? Do I like bankers? <clears throat> uh, Your Honor, may I have a minute please to confer with my colleagues you may dump them while you're at it let's get rid of number four six and i'd say lose number 12 except the prosecutor's gonna up and do it for us number six you're kidding right she's my first choice she's my first pass and four with the dreadlocks that's crazy that's a defendant's cure if i ever saw one. did you see his shoes uh look kid Maybe down in Florida, you are the next big thing. This is New York, Manhattan. We're not squeezing oranges here. He polishes those shoes every night. He makes his own clothes. He may look like a brother with an attitude to you, but I see a man with a shotgun under his bed. And woe betide the creature who steps into his garden. And number six, your favorite, she's damaged goods. She's a Catholic schoolteacher. Hmm? Believes in human frailty? No. There's something missing from her. She's wrong. She wants on this jury. Somebody hurt her and she wants revenge. How the hell do you know that? I don't know. Look, either you put a stop to this happy way or I walk. Walk. All right, here's the deal. I lose with your jury. You do the explaining. It's clearly a hard worker and, uh, you know, kind of a bootstraps kind of guy. And apparently this has something to do with um, with some kind of of banker or loan office or something like that. That's right. That's right. Because one of the first questions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He's asking about how how the how the juror feels about credit unions. So, yeah. Yeah. Something to do with that. Right. So but basically he's sort of reading the jury and their kind of personalities and uh, he, you know, he mentions, and the prosecution is going to screw up and get rid of this other one for us. And the older guy pushes back and is like, "Are you crazy?" And and um, sort of says, "Okay, fine, we'll do it your way, but you, you, Lehman, you need to tell the when he loses, you need to put it on him and not on me. I don't, I don't want to take the heat for this." And it's um, 
it's not not made explicit, but I, I'm assuming that these are just their three peremptory challenges, and they end up excusing the jurors that uh, Lomax said they should get rid of. Yeah, the old stuffy lawyer, um, mm-hmm. like you said, uh, he he basically at one point tells Lehman, you know, put a stop to this or I'll walk, and Lehman says, walk. <laughs> right, right, yeah. And, and, and yeah. the guy basically says, all right, and he looks over at Lomax, and he's like, all right, but if I lose with your jury, you get to explain. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. And um, I don't know, did I miss anything else that you had questions about or anything for this scene? Because I think that that's, that's mostly it. Um, the I will say that just in trial, in trials, the, well, I guess I'm more familiar with criminal trials than I am with civil trials, but um, the, the voir dire c- can be quite long, like, you know, uh, day or more or whatever to go through all these people and ask all these questions. And this was clearly just like a little snippet of it, but uh, and it almost feels like it's right at the end after they had got done kind of grilling everyone. So I think that this was probably fine. Like I, I didn't see anything that like he had these unorthodox reasons for excusing the jurors, but none of them were inappropriate, like based on race or religion or something like that. So um, it seemed like all in all that was like, a pretty fine scene to me. Okay. This is something else. I have no idea how this like popped up in my, in my memory. Um, at one point I was doing some research for a a novel series I was writing that involved, um, some, some, uh, world building that was loosely based on, what I guess could be described as angelology because there were some characters or figures in the books that had, that had some correlation with angels. Um, and I remember that there were different numbers that are kind of associated with different like angelic ties. And I'm going to come back to that in a second. We then move from the courtroom, the, the jury voir dire scene to the apartment that, um, the law firm has put Kevin and, and Marianne up in during their stay in New York. And Kevin comes in and he's looking all like downtrodden and stuff. And, mm-hmm. and Marianne's like, what's wrong? What's going on? And uh, he says, 38 minutes. They liberated for 38 minutes. And uh, my, he's like my jury. And he is, um, you know, of course, making it seem like he he lost. They lost the case. And, and did you hear uh, what her response was that was to that? Was it something again like you know everybody loses at some point and it's okay something it like was, that? What did she but say? It was. Yeah. It was. Don't you know everybody loses? Don't worry about it. And he was guilty as sin. Oh. So yeah, for a gotcha, couple, of, yeah. Uh, that's kind of a double whammy there because mm. not only was yeah. he obviously guilty, but I guess that phrasing I think was oh yeah, guilty as note. sin. Yeah, yeah, pretty sure uh, that's what she says. That that, that uh, I he, she does. I remember that now, and that's definitely. I don't think there are any accidental lines in this film. So <laughs> that's true. Um, yeah, but he says thirty eight enough times in this scene that it made me wonder. I wrote it down, and it made me wonder if there was something to that. Uh-huh. And um, I, uh, the number thirty-eight is a mixture of some different um, 
angelic attributes uh, that I'm not going to get into. But basically, to boil it down, the number 38 symbolizes confidence, creativity, self-expression, optimism, joy, courage, material abundance, and reality. Interesting. And several of those concepts come into play in this movie in different ways. And so I, I was I was almost more impressed on my analysis of some of the stuff hidden in this movie than I was with the movie itself. <laughs> uh, whether it you know hold, lives up to the sum of its parts, we'll get to um, in in the verdict area. But uh, uh-huh. th- there are lots of little things peppered in there that I thought was cool. That is cool. I see all this stuff was over my head. I have no, I have no meaningful expertise, knowledge, or, or exposure to a lot of this stuff. So I, I never would have picked up on that. But uh, well, and, I like that. And honestly, like that. that one, that one is going to be an outlier. Uh, a lot of the other stuff that I'm going to pick up on is going to pale in comparison to what, what, like you said, what Prof Jeff would have brought to this show. Um, mm-hmm. He's like a walking encyclopedia of a lot of this stuff. But I also, just from my literary criticism days, because I, I was an English major, uh, and just from those days, I picked up on some some things and some references. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, at this point, um, Lehman, uh, uh, you see Kevin and Lehman talking, and I forget the setting, but they're, and Lehman basically says, sorry for the, uh, for the additional stay, but... Um, you know, the uh, the head of the firm really wanted to meet you. And, um, you know, we, we didn't think that it would bother you all too much to stay in the apartment for another couple of days. And, and you know, Kevin kind of laughs and says, no, no, no it yeah, wasn't, wasn't a big deal. Well, um, so Lehman takes him uh, into the firm. Um, and uh, I have here in my notes, meeting with Bigwig in Evil Lair. <laughs> Yeah, at first it it doesn't seem like um there's too much going on. I will say that the building that the firm is in is called Penta Plaza. Um, <laughs> I didn't I did not see that. That's funny. <laughs> I just happened to notice that so I wrote it down. At this point I I realized there were going to be easter eggs. So yeah, Penta here almost definitely being a reference to the pentagram um which is, mm-hmm. you know, a, a famous demonic symbol. Um but they go up and you you see a couple of different people in passing. Um one woman you see through uh through a window she's speaking in, in some foreign language on some kind of conference call and um kevin is almost immediately arrested by her she's just this beautiful woman um and he like stops and stares and so she like goes over and closes her door and closes the blinds and kind of gives him this look and then he kind of shakes it off and continues to follow lehman up to the um the penthouse i guess and um he is introduced to uh, Al Pacino's character. He walks in and uh, introduces himself as John Milton. And um, do you know the um, Im- the significance of that name here in this case? It is uh, the author of Paradise Lost, right? Paradise Lost, which, yes. Um, as soon as I heard that name, uh, <laughs> that's actually when I first thought, oh, Jeff, Jeff has got to see this and he's got to get, he's going to get a kick out of this. Um Prof. Jeff loves Paradise Lost. Uh, it's one of his favorite um, pieces of literature. And uh, the character of Milton's Satan has um, 
kind of taken on a life of its own and has influenced a lot of whenever you see like the devil portrayed in popular culture, um, it almost without fail is going to have some sort of connection to Milton's character of Satan. And there is some uh, conflicting interpretation as with regard to whether Milton actually meant to characterize Satan as a tragic hero, or if he was presenting Satan as a, tragic figure um not as the hero of the poem or or really as a victim but as somebody who finds himself in a circumstance and then chooses the wrong way of dealing with it um Mm -hmm. so it's anyway it's it's not clear but in he's ambiguous uh definitely in in as far as how you could interpret him regardless of what Milton intended it to be. Um, but yeah. uh, Paradise Lost is a big influence. Um, I would I also know they say quote it directly at least once. Yes, definitely. And we will, we will get to that for sure. Uh, Dante's Inferno, of course, is, um, and then uh, um, Johann Goethe's Faust, which um, was based on, on old, an old legend uh, about uh, a, a guy, I think he is like an alchemist or something who sells his soul for power. Um, but anyway, those are kind of like the the unholy trinity of literary um, <laughs> demonology uh, that um, a lot of popular culture pulls from. So anyway, John Milton is the name of the author of Paradise Lost and also the name of the head of this law firm who invites uh, Kevin on board for a job, basically. So... What do you uh, do? You have anything to say about this this part of the film? Um, you know, it's so it starts the when they're first walking through the regular office space. It seems like a decent representation of a hotshot office, you know, hotshot lawyer's office in New York, and then it turns into like I described it as the evil villain layer, which is like big exposed stone and a room that is nothing but a fireplace and a bench and a bunch of yeah. just like wild stuff that I guess yeah, the fireplace. whole point is. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> I was just going to say, I guess the whole point is to show like opulence and just intentional waste almost like they're they're yeah it's like you, you this get, opulent you see it's austerity a, yeah mm-hmm, right <laughs> it, they go out of their yeah. way to show you how how uh, how the real estate that they're in is expensive impressive and and whatever and then they almost immediately after show you how uh poorly they're like mismanaging that space or you know i guess like i said intentionally yeah. mismanaging it excuse me um yeah, so you walk in, and at one, it's it. The room I I think is like circular in nature, but uh, you walk in, mm-hmm. and in one, what would be a corner, if you imagine a diamond superimposed on the circle, in one corner, there is uh, the door, and then that would be home plate, uh, and then first base would be a, like you said, a, a bench, and I think the I think the liquor cabinet is also on that side, the bar. Mm-hmm. Um, third base would be the, um, the fireplace that you mentioned. Yep. Who's on first. And then, and then second base is 
the desk, uh, Milton's desk, behind which is a giant bust. Uh, well, at this point, it's just kind of an obscure sculpture. Although, in the original, um, it was actually sculpted with um, lots of like human figures on it in different poses. Uh, but that was then the subject of a lawsuit <laughs> because uh, the sculptor of the facade of some some cathedral or or state building or something uh, in Washington uh, said that the sculpture in this movie was too close to his work. And so there was a big investigation and all that. And so just to save time, Warner Brothers just kind of um, took off the human figures in this part of the movie although it does come up a little bit later on. Um, I also think that this is a reference to um, William Blake's uh, art uh, based on Paradise Lost. William Blake, another English poet who kind of <coughs> dabbled in a lot of different different theological areas, uh, but he was also an artist, and some of his famous work is based on Paradise Lost. And hmm. I saw some of that in college, and that's what this sculpture reminded me of. But anyway, that is the office. What I thought was also interesting was what is outside of the office. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. Milton, the... Yeah. <laughs> no, go ahead. Yeah, Milton takes, uh, takes Kevin out of this door, and there's this, this walkway with two what look like pools of water that are, I guess, cascading down the side of the building. Um, I think they're infinity pools. I think yeah, that's what the okay. term is, where the water goes like right up to the edge. And so it gives the appearance that it's just like the surface is water straight across. Uh, okay. That would make sense. That would make sense. Okay. But what the, the strangest thing about this is there's no rail. <laughs> no, no, there isn't. <laughs> there's, it's just a walkway that goes to the edge of the building and then two walkways down the, the, the sides of, of, the, of the edge of the building. And uh, uh, Milton says, what do you think? A lot of people can't handle it. And at first, Kevin seems like to be okay. And then he kind of walks up the edge and he looks over and he's like, holy shit. <laughs> holy shit. <laughs> little different when you're looking down, isn't it? Yes, it is. Oh, my God. A lot of potential clients down there. Are we negotiating? Always. <laughs> you offering me a job? I'm thinking about it. I know you got talent. I, I knew that before you got here. It's just the other thing I wonder about. What thing is that? Pressure. Changes everything, pressure. Some people, you squeeze them, they focus. Others fold. Can you summon your talent at will? Can you deliver on a deadline? Can you sleep at night? When do we talk about money? Money? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the easy part. There, by the way, there are a couple of different utterances in this film of holy shit and Jesus Christ. Um, and it probably didn't really mean that much. Uh, like it wasn't like a big, oh, he said the thing. But in the context of this film, it made me 
<laughs> you made me right. think more than those terms usually do. But, right, yeah. Uh, anyway, um, and I will say this scene was reminiscent to me. Um, do you think we can go ahead and spoil it, um, Pacino's character here? Yeah, I think uh, for context. I, I think it's important. Yeah, for the rest yeah. of the, the context, for the rest of the discussion. So, if you haven't if you haven't seen the movie yet, this is your last stop to get off and go watch it before Spoiler Town. And there okay. is one other spoiler that I think we can uh, stand to wait until the end of the episode to talk about. But the big thing, which honestly, like I said, becomes pretty obvious, is Pacino, uh, John Milton, is Satan incarnate. Um he is the actual literal devil from hell, from the Bible. Uh, in this universe, both God and the devil are actual real beings, although um, God does not make an appearance in this film. Uh, it's really just, a, you know, Satan talking about God. So, mm-hmm. um, And this scene is reminiscent of a scene in the, um, the Gospels, the first four books of the Christian New Testament, where... Um, the temptation of the temptations of Christ. Uh, this one, where Satan took Jesus up to a high place and said, "You know, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself off. Surely your angels will save you." Um, during the course of the three temptations of Satan, Satan also quotes scripture to Jesus. And at this point in the film, um, Milton quotes scripture uh, to uh, to Kevin. Um, Actually, the words of Jesus, uh, behold, I send you out as sheep amidst the wolves. And um, that that definitely, that's not an accident. The fact that they're up on this high place and, um, and Milton is quoting scripture at him and offering him this, you know, this once in a lifetime opportunity to join this powerful firm. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, I, uh, Kevin, this, uh, this made me this made me like super uncomfortable and freaked out, and I really was like, again, because I still didn't know what the movie was about, and I was like, is he gonna shove him off and he's dead, and then that's how he meets the devil? Because it wasn't clear that Al Pacino, like he's clearly like not a good guy, but there's a lot of not good guys in the movie so far, and I was like, is this where we're going with this thing? So, uh, but I did not know. I mean, like I did not pick up on yeah. any of the parallels yeah for sure like it was it was really really crazy um and again not knowing where it was going um i just this was one of the first signs to me that um that milton was was satan so mm-hmm. but uh kevin joins the firm um they are given this huge huge apartment um and they they meet um Lehman's wife, uh, Lehman Heath, is their uh, their across the hall neighbor. Um, this is a I, I don't know. Is this this isn't Trump Tower? Trump Tower comes into play at some point in the movie, but I don't think this is it. But um, anyway, big apartment, big New York apartment. It's like two apartments to a floor, uh, multiple rooms, high ceilings. Uh, but here we meet Lehman's wife. Um, uh, Jackie Heath, who is played by um, Tamara Tooney, and she sort of takes uh, Marianne under her wing um, as the you know the wife of this this rich um, you know super busy lawyer, and that's a whole plot of its own that we'll come back to. But um, you know you start to see some of the opulence that they're moving into, mm-hmm. and then Kevin gets his first uh, first assignment, and yeah. you want to talk about the. Um, 
uh, trying Moyes? to try to yes the Moyes case. Well, I can't um, remember what his first uh, name is, but Moyes. Oh, uh, it's a uh, Philippe Moyes, uh, and Philippe. he is played interestingly uncredited, but he's played by Delroy George Lindo, um, a. British American. He's been in a lot of stuff. He's been in a lot of stuff. I was going to say, I recognize him from a lot of things, but definitely would um, encourage people to look him up. But yeah, Yeah. Philippe Moyes, let's talk about that case. So uh, Kevin, I guess, probably correctly deduces that as like a test for him, he's given a, a loser of a case to see what he does. And at some point, he's talking to, I think, his assistant, Pam, is his, I think that's Pam, her, her yes. title or role, her his legal assistant. Yeah, and I think she's something, she's some kind of assistance in, in the firm. Like, she sits in on several different cases, but she's, like, mm-hmm. specifically assigned to, to Kevin as well. Yeah, yeah, and she's... Oh, before we get into the case, I think this is also the point where he meets the... Um, all the other members of like the leadership board. Did you want to talk about that? You, you mentioned it earlier, like the maritime law guy. <laughs> oh yeah. I, mean, I, just, I, I was just mostly throwing that out there just cause it's something that you don't really think about much uh, unless you're, I guess doing it, but uh, it, it, they're just big boardroom and he meets all of the heads of, of whatever. And you get kind of a sense that this company is a big international and like, maybe not like super, uh, like they they don't say anything directly at this point, but you it kind of gives you the impression that maybe they're doing some something that that's like not super on the up and up in some of these foreign countries. They've got their hands in some some shady stuff, yeah, 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 and wide reaching. Yes, but yeah, continue. You're talking about he's um kind of yes, briefing so he, himself he on, is, the, on the Moyes case with Pam. He's handed a a uh, a challenging case where um moyes there's a video of him basically sacrificing a goat and um he's charged with some kind of like code violation for i can't remember if they, they probably say the actual thing that he's charged with but basically it's a code violation for like a health code for whatever sacrificing a animal without a license or something and yeah something um, like that he's slaughtering a goat uh, in his basement it's what it looks like he's yeah doing. yeah and in like some sort this of isn't like a, a half-finished basement in the midwest with wood paneling this is what looks like a fight club or something like just it's like candles and uh, bad lighting and it looks like uh, it looks like the part of the first person shooter where you start to get your jump scares. It's just like a, a weird, a weird <laughs> yeah. area. Good, good way to put uh, it. Which happens to be in like the basement of this dilapidated New York building, but we're not quite exactly. There yet, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So he he's talking to Pam about the case. Or I think is what he's talking to Pam. Basically, we we get fed this information as the viewer that. Um, this is a, an intentionally bad case. It's going to be hard. And Kevin knows that he is not to settle this case, that it is his test to, to succeed. He has to win by going to trial and, and winning and basically, you know, pulling a rabbit out of a hat, doing his thing, which is mm-hmm. the, the magic. Um, and so, um, 
there, so I have these notes here and they're kind of out of place because, uh, I don't know. It may be when they're in trial, but I think someone makes a comment about, uh, Lomax wearing boots, like cowboy boots, basically. I think they might even be alligator boots. Do you remember where this happens? Yeah. I don't want to jump. So, um, I vaguely remember that. So this is when he shows up to actually meet Moyes. Um, and there's this guy across the street, the street who seems like just this crazy homeless dude who's like warning him about going in there. Like, he, I know what they're doing over there. I know, this, you know, like, you know, accusing them of, of some, some bad stuff. And this kid comes out, um, to lead Kevin down into into the lair, as it were, and like right. gives the the guy across the street a look, and um, the guy just kind of slinks away. But Kevin is you know questioning this kid like, what? Why are you taking me to to the basement? You know, is is I'm not sure you understand what I'm saying. And he's like, the kid's like, you want to see Moyes? Kevin's like, yeah. And I, th- I think that's when the kid says something like, you should show him your shoes or something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, that's right. But, he says that there. Yeah. And, and uh, um, Milton might make a comment about it later, too. But in any event, this is just a... Oh, uh, totally random aside, but they, there, there's some indication that these boots are improper for him as a lawyer or shouldn't be worn in court or anything. And I just wanted to point out that I did know a judge who did wear his, I think they may have even been alligator skin cowboy boots, uh, to court regularly. And I just thought it was amusing that they made a point of it. And I just happened to know a judge who used to do that. So I, I'm pointing it out That's here so to say, say that them making fun of him for doing it is actually, I guess we'll call this technically a uh, bad take on, on a legal uh, issue. Well, and I mean, Kevin, um, <laughs> uh, Kevin being uh, from Florida, um, you know, the alligator skin boots are probably, mm-hmm. probably a thing there. Um, and, in my experience, alligator skin boots are also usually not cheap, especially if it's real gator skin. And so right. that could also be a sign of his vanity, of Kev- some of Kevin's yeah. vanity, mm-hmm. um, which he he toes the line pretty well between confidence and vanity in the movie. Um, where he falls on that line probably differs depending on where in the film you are. But yeah. I, I want to point out, he goes down and he meets Moyes, and instead of actually talking about the case, talking about anything like that, yes, Moyes yeah. basically just asks him, you know, who's the name of our of our opponent, and so Kevin gives him the uh, the prosecutor's name, and or the the assistant DA's name, and Moyes pulls out what I think is a beef tongue, yep, mm-hmm. and um, curses him, says something like, hex you on know, him. the the tongue can uh, can create silence or we can get silence with the tongue or something like that and yeah right. he apparently cast some sort of, of hex on on the guy because the guy can't stop coughing and can barely get a word in during the, <laughs> during the course of the case right so and uh, i love how yeah. how the judge is he is not sympathetic and not concerned at all for this prosecutor who is you know choking to death in front of him and he says like good heavens get it together man 
Just like <laughs> yeah, telling him to snap out of it while he's going purple and dying in front of his very eyes. But uh, one, I a couple of other short notes on the. Actually, just one more thing. So I mentioned that it's a health code case, and when uh, Lomax is back in the office doing research, and I guess he says, you know, bring me all of the New York City health codes or something. And there are a couple of books on the Wheeling bookshelf that they bring him that are clearly not have anything to do with health codes. There was one that was like (laughs) the penal code was what it said, which is, uh, I mean, that is like basically criminal statutes and stuff. So uh, (laughs) they, they make it seem like, oh, he's got all these legal books. But a few of them were like just based on what they said on the spine of the book, not had anything to do with health codes. So, do you want to go to the actual trial part now? I don't know if I, I can't remember if there's anything else in between. I, I don't. I don't think there's there. anything else. Yeah, let's go ahead and get into the the Moyes trial. So, as we mentioned, the prosecutor seems to have some kind of hex or curse on him, where he is basically unable to speak, and so he's not able to. He he attempts to object and kind of can't really do it, and uh, just like a handful of things where you you get the idea that there's something. Um, supernatural happening and Mm. in essence um, Lomax kind of compares this animal sacrifice as a uh, like a a religious freedom a a way way of expressing his religion and Mm -hmm. compares it to several other religions and the the judge makes a comment about him being very familiar with Jewish law and, and something like that and it ends up the judge buys it and the case is is thrown out and uh, he, especially because the other guy can't can't really make, right. a, make exactly. an argument <laughs> exactly so i mean and this is uh, this is clearly like a low stakes case and it, it sort of uh was i thought it was kind of weird too like why are they taking on this low stakes case and then a little bit later and this is kind of doesn't come back to have any relevance in the rest of the movie that I can think of, but um, uh, Milton is talking to to Lomax about Moyes and says that he's got like $15 million in his bank account and he just happens to choose to live in this basement. So he's some important important client of the firm's and that that's why he ended up having Kevin do it. But uh, yeah, that's, that's all I had to say on that case. Outstanding. Go figure it. A guy like Moyes, living in some subterranean hole, all the while he's walking around with $15 million in his bank account. You're kidding. What do you think he's paying us in, goat's blood? Hey, Tarzan, we're billing you out at 400 an hour, my friend. I don't see a whole lot of pro bono work in your immediate future. I figured you came down here to make sure I didn't this up. Maybe I did. Don't get too cocky, my boy, no matter how good you are. Don't ever let him see you coming. That's the gaff, my friend. You got to keep yourself small, innocuous. Maybe the little guy. You know, the nerd, the leper, kicking surfer. Look at me. Underestimated from day one. You'd never think I was a master of the universe now, would you? That's your only weakness, as far as I can see. What's that? It's the look. That Florida stud thing. What is that? 
Excuse me, ma'am. Did I leave my boots under your bed? <laughs> Never worked a jury didn't have a woman. Yeah, but you know what you're missing? You're missing what I have. I'm the hand of Mona Lisa's skirt. I'm a surprise, Kevin. They don't see me coming. That's what you're missing. Um, I'm going to kind of fast forward through some of this other stuff because we we get to another trial at some point, which is where you're going to kind of come back in. But I think that there's really in the middle of the movie a lot of fluff that basically just tells the story of Kevin um, rising to more prominence in the firm, uh, yeah. getting getting brought into Milton's inner circle and becoming busier and busier while Marianne starts to realize that in absence of the job that she had, she's kind of going a little stir crazy with the apartment and not knowing what to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's not seeing as much of her husband. Um, mm-hmm. And she did for the record, she did completely agree to this whole thing. Um, uh, she was actually really excited about, you know, the opportunities and everything. And um, she was kind of like the final vote. Yeah. Because yeah, she was at the very beginning. He said he wouldn't do it if she wasn't on board. Exactly. And, yeah. And she basically kind of scoffs at him. It's like, are you kidding? You know? <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah. so she, she was fully supportive. Um, but things <laughs> start to fall apart at a party that they go to because Marianne asks, uh, is obviously nervous about meeting a lot of the big wigs and everything. And Kevin's reassuring her. And she says, well, just promise me that you won't leave me tonight. Mm-hmm. And, um, he does. <laughs> uh, he gets distracted, gets gets asked about different things. While he is distracted, um, Milton comes over, and this is Marianne's first meeting with Milton. And there's a really creepy scene where he talks to her about um, like um, a woman's body and the mystery in her neck and shoulders and <laughs> convinces yeah. her to like lift up her hair, which she's got this crazy curly perm um, at the beginning part of the film. And he convinced her to like hold it up and like hold it back. And, um, but you can also tell that she's kind of into it. Like he's being really seductive. And it's like something that, like, he, it shouldn't work because Pacino is just really, really doing a great job of like the creepy old man vibe, but also the like sort of irresistible. There's some kind of force that he has over her. Um, so that scene was interesting. But, and Kevin has a scene in this party with um, Christabella Andreoli, played by Connie, uh, Connie Nielsen, who we find out was the mysterious, beautiful woman um, with the foreign accents, which kind of comes and goes in the film. <laughs> <laughs> As with all this, this, this yeah. movie, if this was called, I don't know, the accent bar, it would get a hard, hard guilty because they're just awful, awful accents throughout. Just really, really bad stuff. Um, But yeah, Kevin and Christabella have this uh, conversation out on the terrace where they kind of talk about nothing at all, but it's just sort of a scene filler from what I recall. But then Milton comes out and says, you know what I see? The future of this firm. And he... Um, that's when he invites Kevin upstairs and they find out about this other case, which we'll come back to in a moment because that's the mm-hmm. next big, that's the next big part. But when he gets home, um, Marianne is there is waiting for Kevin 
and says, you left me like three hours. You couldn't call. And Kevin's like, it was three hours. Like what, you know, what's the big deal? And you start to see them sort of getting, getting frayed. And um, Kevin is, uh, is following her. And when he comes into the apartment, um, I'm not sure if you noticed this, but the hallway behind him, the The lighting, really red. Yeah. Really red lights. It's, um, it was kind of heavy handed, but yeah, it was there. And then as they're walking down the hall toward the bedroom, that hallway is also lit in red. And Mm -hmm. at one point she tells him to go to hell, (laughs) which again, I think that one was intentional. Yeah. (laughs) Um, and says, you can sleep on the couch. And so this is where they start to kind of, kind of fall apart. And, um, I made some predictions here that didn't really end up coming to pass, but I'll talk about that, I guess a little later, but there's a whole series of like Marianne sort of falling apart and starting to, to see things like see, um, Jackie Heath, Lehman's wife, for example, at one point they're like in a, um, in a changing room and she sees like this Jackie turns to her and has this demonic face Mm -hmm. and she starts to like see stuff and Kevin thinks that she's hallucinating. She believes that what she's seeing is real at another point. Trigger warning again. Uh, she has a nightmare where she wakes up and feels like there's somebody in the apartments. And so she stalks down to the end of the hall and there's this baby sitting there and, uh, it looks like it's playing with something. And when you finally see what it's playing with, it holds up this like mass of gore and viscera, which you find out in the next scene, she believes is this uh, is the baby was holding her mangled uh, ovaries. And so, yeah, disturbing stuff. I don't care if they can hear me. I don't care. I don't like it here, Kevin. These women, my God, I mean, I'm seeing things for Christ's sake. You just left them in the store. Yes! Look, calm down. No! Listen to me. No! Mayor, Mayor, first, you do this radical thing to your hair. No, you hate it. Stop. I think it's fine. I think it's fine. But I also think it's traumatic. You've got the pressure of fitting in with new friends, a new place. Add to that a couple bottles of wine. No, no. It wasn't the wine, Kevin. It wasn't the wine or my hair or talking to Kathy or anything like that because I know that's what you're going to say. What about Kathy? What about your sister? What about her? She's pregnant again. Oh, that's got nothing to do with this. Kevin, I'll never see you anymore. And now that you've got this big case, it's just only going to get worse. If you can believe it, I'm actually looking forward to having your mother come and visit. What about the apartment? God damn you! Why do you always have to go and change things around? This is not about the apartment. I hate this stupid place! You know, you buy a couple of new suits and you're fine. It's a little more than that, Mayor. I have this whole place to fill. And I know we've got all this money and it's supposed to be fun, but it's not. It's like a test. The whole thing is like one big test. And God... I'm so lonely. I miss you so much. I'm sorry, I don't know what to do. 
That's my good baby. Don't tease me. I wouldn't do that. Not unless you asked. But that's the slow unraveling of Marianne. Uh, while this is going on, though, Kevin is dealing with the next big case. I mentioned back at the party that Milton invited Kevin up to the penthouse to talk with uh, the other leaders, um, Lehman, and another guy we haven't mentioned yet, but um, Eddie Barzoon, who I forget what his actual, he's like a, he's a, a managing, managing partner or some, something. Some sort of director. Yeah. Um, but he's, he's one of the big, big bigs at the firm. And uh, played by Jeffrey Jones, um, longtime character actor, um, maybe most famous until as his Principal until his own legal uh, problems. Uh, yeah, yeah, yes. Um, uh, but probably most famous in the the eighties for um, Principal Rooney and Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and mm-hmm. as Charles Dietz in Beetlejuice. Um, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, so. He's with Eddie and Lehman and uh, John John Milton, and they find out about this case involving a a repeat client of theirs, um, a local I think big time business owner by the name of Alex Cullen, who is played as you said by Coach Craig T Nelson. So, what's going on ne- with uh, never expected with to have him come up in in multiple movies on this podcast? I'm just gonna say. <laughs> So uh, they. It turns out that. Uh, okay, tell me his name again. I, I I wrote it down and now I don't see where it is. My notes. Um, Alex Cullen. Cullen. Cullen is arrested for murdering his wife, his son, and his maid, and he claims that he came home and found all three of them dead, and. Um, uh, I mean, I, I, they get into the details a little bit more, but he, there's like fingerprints and handprints, and he claims he came in, found the gun on the ground, bent over and picked it up, and then called the police himself. And um, Which, you know, if you look at the history of the films in this podcast, it's not unusual. Phoenix Wright does mm-hmm. that. So. Yep. <laughs> That's right. Phoenix yeah, Wright. Go ahead. So... Um, Kevin, basically, Al Pacino, the firm has a relationship with, with, with Mullins for, um, I guess, real estate or whatever. There's some non-criminal. They're, they're, they know him and they have these connections. And so they really want to, re- to have him retain them for his legal defense. Uh, because I, I don't know if we mentioned this specifically, but, um, Lomax is kind of the first criminal attorney at this law firm. And um, uh, the the whole plan is uh, that Milton wants to basically like start, found this legal division of their, of their firm. So uh, this is kind of like, let's do this. This will be a great way to do it. We'll get this big shot. This is your big chance to shine, et cetera, et cetera. Kind of like a lot of the wrong reasons for it, and so they have mm-hmm. to put together some game plan on on how to get him t- 
Mullins to take a chance on this young upstart attorney. Um, let's see what what do, what am I missing for the point A to point B? I, I know they end up getting a meeting with him, but do we? Is there anything between? them hearing about it and them going to some like, cause they, they end up meeting him in like a, basically like a high rise that's under construction. And, that's and what it is. That's where the, so this is the penthouse in Trump tower that they actually, Donald Trump lent them the, probably for a hefty fee, the, the, the penthouse to film the meeting with Cullen in to show like Cullen's opulence. Also, I mean, right. You know, we can talk about like a gold plated room. Basically, when we talk about character parallels and stuff like that as well, but (laughs) um, yeah, 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 uh, there's not a whole lot. I know that in the meeting, I think the way that Lomax wins um, Cullen over is to tell him, you know, uh, give us, you know, um, tomorrow, the next day, you don't like what's going on, you know, find somebody else, but you need immediate representation. And right now I'm the best bet that you have. And, you know, he, he's really gung-ho, really confident, and um, uh, Cullen seems to have, like, this slowly growing, grudging respect for this kid. Not enough, it turns out, to be completely upfront with him about things. But, um, yeah. <laughs> so, basically, um, yeah, he ends up representing Cullen in this case. And we don't see much at all of the trial itself we do see like an opening argument and we see some prep with uh, Cullen and with uh, another party who I'll let you get into, but um, uh, yeah, talk a little bit about what goes on behind the scenes with this trial and how well it it holds up um, in your opinion. So we see him, him being uh, Kevin Lomax doing a lot of, interviewing of witnesses and kind of going over their the testimony first first he meets Mullins a few times and he's going through his story and you can get kind of the impression that he's not really buying it and um at this point I was like kind of surprised that he still cared at all like (laughs) I'm not sure why the yeah Kevin Lomax character at this point when he's kind of backsliding into debauchery and and it's just kind of becoming a sleazebag in in all other aspects is putting on this front that he expects his client to be I don't know if he expects him to be innocent I'm not sure but I guess he does expect him to be upfront with him which is fair but um at least to me, it seemed like he was getting suspicious and then got getting kind of upset about being suspicious that Mullins committed the crime but is not telling him the truth. And, Colin, um, yeah. Colin, yeah, Colin. Why do we have to keep because going? Because it needs to be clear, Mr. Cullen. Because I need to know and understand exactly what happened. You're standing there. You look down. There's the gun. Okay, I don't know why I picked it up. Uh, it was before I saw Lucinda's body. You kneeled down to pick it up? 
You work late, you come home, you walk in, everybody's dead. It's not something you planned for. Stop. Back up. Two prints by the gun. Right hand, right knee. Right knee. We have been over this. I'm trying to picture it. Your hand. Your hand came from inside and underneath. You want to see it? Here. I'll show you. Hey, do you see it? Is it clear? You got it? Whose gun is that? It's mine. Are you out of your mind? You're charged with a triple homicide. You're walking around with a damn gun. I have had nine death threats. Give it over. Now, give me the gun. I got to protect myself. That's my job. When the case is over, you can have it back. This is a deal breaker, Alex. Okay. Let's wrap it up. So what's next? We need to talk to your assistant, Mrs. Black. Okay, call her. You feel confident she'll back you on the time? Melissa, yeah, yeah. She's... She's okay. She's a uh, straight arrow. Okay. So we're going to talk to her. And you're not going to talk to anybody, all right? All right? No comment. And I, I forget at one point he realizes, uh, oh, no, I don't. I don't. I, I remember. Anyway, so the, the order of events here basically is um, he he at first he finds out that Mullins, uh, I'm doing now, Cullen's secretary, Melissa, uh, played by Laura Harrington, will um, uh, testify on his behalf, testify on his behalf and confirm that um, that Cullen was somewhere else during the time of the murders. And um, as Kevin questions her more, he finds out. Uh, so again, a little bit of a side note, you mentioned Kevin slipping into debauchery and this does tie into the case itself. Um, it's at this point where Kevin goes out on a couple of different outings in the city with, with Milton and um, Milton says a couple of things like, uh, you know, they, they never see me coming. They always underestimate me. You know, um, I'm underestimated from the beginning. You know, you look at me, you never, you never, you look at me and never think I'm a master of the universe, you know, something like that. And at another point he goes down into the subway and, uh, Milton says this, you know, uh, that's his advice is, you know, learn, learn the subways and definitely not accidental symbology that they're going down into the underground. Right. Um, while they're on the subway, there's an interesting altercation I'll mention here where, uh, a Hispanic guy, um, threatens Milton with a knife and Milton starts to talk to him in Spanish what he tells uh, Kevin is that he tells the guy that Kevin's going to kick his ass if he doesn't leave him alone. What he actually does is tell the guy that his wife is uh, back home sleeping with his best friend and that if he hurries, he can catch them. <laughs> and mm -hmm. so the and, guy and leaves. And doing drugs. Oh, yeah. And, they're, and that they're and doing drugs. You know. You know, having an affair on on his his favorite comforter or something like that. Um, his favorite green comforter. Favorite green comforter. You, you mentioned yes. color earlier. This is specifically 
a color thing. And green also comes back into play. Um, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll come back to colors after you talk about the case a little bit. But um, uh, he also goes to this this prize fight um, where uh, Don King makes a cameo. <laughs> um, yep. And uh, I know Floyd Merriweather's in the fight. I don't forget who he's fighting, but... Um, you can tell that uh, that Milton's really into it, um, and and there's all kinds of like outings and stuff like that. That's like the other side of what's going on during Marianne's breakdown. But uh, at one point during one of these outings, Kevin tells Milton, um, you know, he's sleeping with a secretary, and he's like, "She told you that?" And Milton says, "She told you that?" And Kevin says, "Yeah, but she won't say it on the stand." And um, Milton says, well, something like along the lines of, well, you know, convince her or, you know, get her to realize what, what, you know, realize what she needs to do, something like that. And so he goes over to confront Cullen, who is at a, um, a meeting with his stepdaughter, who he says means more to her than anything in the world. He, he is presented as this guy or he's trying to present himself as this guy who was in the wrong place at the wrong time and actually really loved his family and now he only has one left and and his time with her is precious and all that stuff i will say sorry uh, i said i'd get back to this and i didn't um before the trial he is having one last interview with the uh the secretary this is where he figures out that cullen is lying and is actually guilty Yeah, mm-hmm. because he's right. questioning the secretary and like practicing with her and says, you know, the prosecution is going to, going to do this and that. And so you got to be prepared, which, um, up, up to a certain point, how do you think that scene did as far as like prepping a witness and stuff like that? Yeah. I mean, it seemed plausible to me. I've never had to prep a witness because I don't have clients, but he, I think that that was like, he was giving her advice of, take a breath, answer yes or no. And like he was asking these hard questions, trying to get her prepared to how to answer and telling her yeah. where, where she might have stumbled or if she gave an answer that wasn't that good or, or whatever. And I thought all that seemed good to me. I actually, it seems like they do that a lot in these movies. And I guess, like I said, it's not something that I've done. So maybe I'm just the one who's wrong. These are all poorly done. They all, all seem to be very plausible to me the way they're handled in most of these movies. So I would give gotcha. that a, a thumbs up. But then at the end of this series of questions, um, he asks her if Cullen is circumcised. And she kind of, she looks nonplussed uh, and doesn't really know how to respond. And that's what clues him in. It's like, you've been sleeping with this guy for how long and you don't know if he's circumcised, you know? Uh, so that's how he knows that she's lying, which indicates to, to him that him. he is also lying. Um, and mm-hmm. anyway, so Kevin comes over and interrupts this session where Colin's having with his, with his stepdaughter to confront him about that. And it's just really antagonizing him uh, like crazy. Right. And that leads us up to the day of the trial where he makes his opening argument or opening statement. Yeah, so he, it's, it is, you come into the trial right at the tail end of the prosecutor's opening statement. And the judge makes some comment about like, 
well, we're pretty close to lunch. Should we just break for lunch now? Or do you want to press on? But kind of giving the impression that like, we need to break a lunch, come back because we just, we don't have enough time. And Kevin Lomax is, is like, oh no, I, I want to go now. It's not yeah, going to take it, forever. If long there's at a all. choice, Your Honor, I'd like to go ahead and go right. now. I won't, yeah. I won't be as long as the prosecution. <laughs> mm-hmm. And he just kind of, um, basically bashes Collins, uh, the, talks about how unlikable he is and how he's just like, a scumbag. And I don't know if we mentioned this, but in the movie, they talk about how he is this real estate mogul or developer or whatever, but he has a lot of enemies and mm-hmm. you get the sense that he, he is not well liked and he is kind of a difficult person to deal with. And he actually kind of like sort of threatens Kevin with a gun at, at, during one of their meetings. He, he has yeah. a gun on him and, and takes it out in a way that, makes it seem like he's intentionally trying to intimidate Kevin. So Kevin does yeah. this opening. Uh, ostensibly, he like it, Holt takes out the gun to show that, uh, you know, how he could have picked it up and how the prints could have appeared the way that they appear at the scene. Um, but then he picks the gun up and Kevin's like, are you serious? You have a gun? And, the, and Cullen holds it up and like holds it in his face and really points it at him. And Kevin yeah. just kind of stands his ground and is like, no, you can't carry a gun. He's like, I've been receiving death threats. I got to protect myself. It's like, this is a deal breaker, Alex. Yeah. Give me the gun or find another lawyer. Basically something like that. So, um, and the gun, the gun comes yeah. into play later, actually. Yeah. So, um, keep going though with the, with the, right. So he, he's, he's piling on and attacking his character. And then at the end, he basically says, but, not liking him is not grounds to to find him guilty of murder. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I know you've spent all morning listening to Mr. Broigo talk. I know you're hungry. What I need to tell you won't take very long at all. I don't like Alexander Cohen. I don't think he's a nice person. I don't expect you to like him. He's been a terrible husband to all three of his wives. He's been a destructive force in the lives of his stepchildren. He's cheated the city, his partners, his employees. He's paid hundreds and thousands of dollars in penalties and fines over the years. I don't like him. I'm going to tell you some things during the course of this trial that are going to make you like him even less. But this isn't a popularity contest. It's a murder trial. And the single most important provable fact of this proceeding is that Alexander Cullen was somewhere else when these horrible crimes took place. Now the state, the state's going all out here. They've got this whole team here. They're throwing everything but the kitchen sink at this case. I want one thing from you. That's it. One thing. I want you to ask yourself, is not liking this man reason enough to convict him of murder? Enjoy your lunch. We'll talk again. What the f*** was that about? They're going to hate me.
listen to me like you've never listened to anybody before in your life. I'm gonna bust my ass to make sure they hate you. Because as long as you're out boning Melissa, you're not home killing your wife. Why didn't you say something before? And it doesn't look spontaneous. Yeah, so, <clears throat> I mean, like, yeah, it seemed, it seemed like a clever way to do that. I mean, seemed, again, seemed plausible. Your, your whole alibi is getting the jury to believe that he was having an affair with his secretary. So he's laying the groundwork to make everybody predisposed to dislike him. And mm -hmm. it's kind of, kind of clever. So I'll buy it. I don't know if it would work or not, but I'll buy it. Well, I think that except for one last bit, that is that is probably the last like legal situation. So let me add two more things that I, I'm just looking through my notes, and I, I realize I forgot to say two points yeah, go ahead. about this trial. Um, just wanted to again criticize him getting up in the face of the jury when when uh, both both sides did it in this when they're oh, yeah. talking to the jury. They're like. Walk leaning right on, the, on, the, on the bar <laughs> and stuff. And again, you're not allowed to get up next to the jury like that. And the one thing that I will say that I thought was a, a positive is he's talking to... <sighs> Kevin is talking to someone from the firm. It may be Milton. I don't think it's Milton, but maybe it's Lehman. When he's realizing that... Um. Uh, uh, the secretary is not telling the truth and he says oh it is Milton because he says I, I can't put her on the stand if I if I know that she's lying and then uh, he Milton says well how do you know she's lying just because she didn't give you an answer that that you like doesn't mean she's lying and I thought that that was actually pretty good because he he's right you can't you can't call a witness ethically if you know that they're going to lie you need to discourage them from lying we kind of talked about this a little bit in some previous episodes but i thought that mm -hmm. that was a fair response from from uh um uh, from milton too because he's like he points out like well the things that she said don't necessarily mean they're lying it could just be whatever she was frustrated or it it, it ended up working both ways so i liked the way that they handled that they actually addressed the real legal requirement and then also kind of explained away why it might be a gray area or something that may cause the lawyer to have some second 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 guess himself or something like that but uh yeah, yeah so well you then ultimately, a couple of things was that go ahead yeah I was going to say ultimately unless I'm forgetting something else he ends up getting a not guilty verdict and did I just jump ahead is there something else nope, that we need to talk about yeah, first? He does yeah. get a non-guilty verdict. Um, and like I said, that's where we're going to kind of leave the legal realm for a bit. So I'm going to yeah. do my best to sum up some of the other main points of the of, of the film. There are a couple of things that I, I meant to mention. Well, I, I was going to mention earlier, but like you said at the beginning, this isn't really like a linear plot because there are several different threads happening at the same time. Um, there was one point when to reassure Marianne, Kevin says, let's make a baby. You're like, you know, let's finally, let's do this. Yeah. Baby and, solves everything um, situation. Yeah. And so they have this, uh, this graphic love scene. Um, 
During the scene, though, very unsettlingly, uh, Kevin goes back and forth between seeing Marianne, you know, played by Shirley Theron, and Christabella, the beautiful woman from The Office, played by Connie Nielsen, um, who he's obviously got this thing for. And he's like going back and forth. And even at one point, uh, Marianne's like, hey, stop, stop. Where are you? And Kevin says, I'm right here. Marianne's like, no, you're not. And it, and it like stops. And it's just, again, one other nail in the coffin of their relationship. And another mm-hmm. thing that sends Marianne over the edge is that she witnesses a murder outside of their apartment. So at one point um, in the evening, Kevin is leaving the office after, after a late meeting and he happens on this this room and i don't know if the door is cracked or if he just hears something and so he opens it but he looks in and eddie barzoon who we talked about earlier one of the big bigs in the company is overseeing this basically this shredding party in, in <laughs> one of the lower levels of the, of the firm and eddie mentions uh, a guy named weaver from the justice department um, and apparently there was this Weaver incident where like there's some kind of investigation that's either ongoing or that happened at one point. And later on, um, Eddie comes and confronts Kevin. Uh, this is right toward the end of the trial, um, the Cullen trial. And it's like, well, congratulations. Um, I don't know how you got your name on the charter, but uh, you must be doing something right. And Kevin's like, what? Uh, he you know doesn't know what's going on. Eddie thinks that Kevin is playing dumb. It's like, you know, I've been the managing director or whatever of this firm for all this time and yada, yada, yada. And you think you're just going to come in here and take my job. And Kevin's Kevin's like, no, no, really. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't want your job. And, you know, Eddie is being really aggressive and it's like, you know what? Maybe I'll just uh, maybe you can deal with Weaver then. Well, congratulations. It's not over yet. Yeah, well, I'm not talking about the trial. What are you talking about? How the does your name get on the firm's charter? What? It looks like it's been there for years. So, now you're a partner. When did that happen? You know, I still am the managing director of this firm. You want my job? Take me head on. You backdoor me one more time, I'll take your partnership papers and I'll shove them down your throat. I don't know what you're talking about, but I sure as hell don't like the tone of your voice. Ah, bullshit. You got a problem with documents? I suggest you put together one of your late-night shredding sessions. You think you're tough enough to run this firm? Ha! Remember the Weaver Commission investigation? Tell your mentor. The next time Weaver calls me, maybe I'll just pick up the phone. In this scene, I also want to point out again, um, at one point when... They're talking about Milton's firm and uh, Eddie's job and Kevin's job and Kevin's name on the charter. In the background, there is this candy apple red Jeep, this bright red that's been prominent in several scenes in the film. And then the camera pans and there is this cool blue Jeep when Kevin starts talking about um, Weaver and, uh, you know, that's that there's there's something going on and that Kevin doesn't know what he's getting into. And it's, of course, uh, uh, there there's kind of a, this was before The Matrix, a couple of years before, but there's an obvious red-blue, red-pill-blue-pill red, red pill, blue pill correlation. But mm-hmm. red 
<laughs> of course, here in this movie is associated with Satan. Blue is a color that it's it's cooler. It tends to be more pure. It's more rational and reasoned, and um, it's like a good color versus the evil color of the red in in the context of this film. And I thought that was that was a, a you know an interesting way of doing that. Um, I, but then, again, I totally missed that. <laughs> I can't believe I, I didn't have no recollection then, uh, of that at all. Uh, um, well, I, you know, you've you've um, you've um, inspired me. You know, I, I haven't really taken notes on very many of these films, but on this one, I was like, you know what? There's some religious stuff going on. I might have something to bring to the table, so I'm going to take notes on this one, like like the dyad does. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, <laughs> clearly better um, than I did. <laughs> But Barzoon then finishes his jog, um, and uh, Kevin goes straight to Milton and tells him what Eddie just told him. And um, Milton goes on this uh, long um, monologue that I can't really do justice to, so I'm going to play a little bit of it here. Um, In fact, I guess I can go ahead and do that now. Was he drunk? I doubt it. He was going running. What the hell was he talking about? Eddie's got himself in trouble again. And he wants me to save him. Only this time I can't. Well, why does he think I'm after his job? You ever have any experience with manic depression? Not directly, no. How you do now? Three, four, six. It's me. Get Eddie Barzoon. Uh, he may be out running, so you might have to page him. It's an emergency. Yes, sir. You look like you could use a drink. Yes. Yes, thanks. Eddie Barzoon, Eddie Barzoon. Ah, <laughs> oh, I nursed him through two divorces, a cocaine rehab, and a pregnant receptionist. God's creature, right? God's special creature? <laughs> and I've warned him, Kevin. I've warned him every step of the way, watching him bounce around like a game, like a wind-up toy. Like 250 pounds of self-serving greed on wheels. The next thousand years is right around the corner, Kevin. And Eddie Barzoon, take a good look. Excuse me. Because he's the poster child for the next millennium. These people, it's no mystery where they come from. You sharpen the human appetite to the point where it can split atoms with its desire. You build egos the size of cathedrals, fiber optically connect the world to every eager impulse, <laughs> grease even the dullest dreams with these dollar green, gold-plated fantasies until every human becomes an aspiring emperor, becomes his own god. And where can you go from there? And as we're scrambling from one deal to the next, who's got his eye on the planet? As the air thickens, the water sours. Even the bee's honey takes on the metallic taste of radioactivity. And it just keeps coming faster and faster. There's no chance to think, to prepare. It's buy futures, sell futures, when there is no future. We got a runaway train, boy. We got a billion Eddie Barzoons all jogging into the future. And then it hits home. You got to pay your own way, Eddie. It's a little late in the game to buy out now. You're all alone, Eddie. You're God's special little creature. (gasps) 
Maybe it's true. Maybe God threw the dice once too often. Maybe he let us all down. And then we come back and Eddie is finishing his job during the course of the speech that you just heard. Uh, he sees these, uh, these joggers um, and there are three of them. And at one point they just disappear. Like they, you know, what, what, phase like, out like the predator phase out. You can see this sort of like, wait, yeah, like the predator. Exactly. Thank you. Um, and uh, Eddie starts to like freak out and panic and run away. And he goes to hide behind this tree and the joggers just sort of run by. They're just all of a sudden they're there again and they run by. But then he gets accosted by this uh, this homeless man who says, give me your watch. And he's like, but I like this watch. And I, I don't <laughs> yeah, know why. Yeah. I just laughed at that scene. Um, <laughs> but, but then he's uh, assaulted by these two homeless guys who beat him to death with tree branches. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, yeah, uh, the fir- next big scene... There are really two more big scenes after the um, two immediate big scenes that kind of juxtapose each other after the trial. Uh, immediately after the trial. Oh, one more thing I forgot to mention. You mentioned that um, when Kevin goes to Milton about the secretary supposedly lying to him, that Milton actually gives him some sound advice. He also at one point, you know, gives him what you know some good advice about his marriage and he's like i'm taking you off this case you know your wife has to come first you need to be there for her you got to take care of her and you know maybe this was too big this was i i was unfair to you know push you into something like this we'll find somebody else for it you don't have to worry about anything everybody will understand and kevin's like no no I, i have to i have to see this through i have to finish this he's like the the worst thing would be what if nothing's wrong? What if she gets better and I hate her for it, you know? Mm -hmm. And so he wants to finish the case. And then he says, then I'll put all my attention on her. Well, as soon as the case is finished, he goes home and his doorman uh, is like, you know, I'm sorry, you know, we tried to stop her, but she was upset. Um, And he's like, where did she go? And he says, she went down to this church down the street. And I want to mention the whole time that, Kevin is in the courtroom uh, defending Cullen. Milton is there. Like Kevin looks back several times and sees Milton in the courtroom with him. When he catches up with Marianne at the church, she's wrapped in a blanket and she uh, is just completely distraught. And she's told Kevin a couple of times already that she hates this place, that she, she doesn't like it here. She wants to go home. There was an instance where Kevin's mom came to visits and you could tell that she was just completely thrown off by this place, by Milton himself. There's something there that she just does not like this man. Um, and so she leaves and, uh, Marianne is basically alone again after Alice leaves and goes back to Florida. But back in the church, um, Kevin asks what's wrong and finally gets Marianne to say that Milton, she doesn't phrase it this way, but essentially what comes across is that Milton assaulted her and that they had um, very violent and aggressive relations uh, for basically the entire day that day. And Kevin says, what are you talking about? You know, 
he was in court all day. What are you saying? What's going on? And he's like, he's frustrated because he's angry at what she's saying. He's angry at the situation, he, but he's worried about her because he thinks she's losing her mind and that she's been seeing things. And then she stands up and throws off the blanket and she's completely nude and covered in these red like welts or gouges or scratches. And of course he's thinking this is self mutilation. She's losing her mind. And so he has her committed. Um, and you can tell it's tearing him apart, but I will say this whole time, except for the weird scene where like in his head, I guess he's being unfaithful to her because he's also sleeping with Christabella Mm -hmm. for with all the other things he does. He does not ever actually cheat on, Marianne with Christabella or anybody else as far as we see. No. I mean, he's um, not present he, and he's not very kind to her but he's not <laughs> expressly he's unfaithful. Not her. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, he is not having sex with other women. He's not having affairs. Um, uh, or men for that matter. But mm-hmm. <clears throat> So the next scene also in a church is um, Eddie Barzoon's funeral. A couple of disturbing things happen here. Um Kevin is sitting in this seat between Jackie Heath and Christabella, and um, he is looking up in a few pews ahead. Alexander Cullen has showed up to pay his respects, and he is there with his um, stepdaughter, and strangely enough, also her stepdaughter's case his stepdaughter's caseworker who was mm-hmm. like running the meeting with the stepdaughter that uh, Kevin interrupted earlier in the movie. And you see him, like, putting his fingers down the back of his stepdaughter's dress and just really, really creepy vibes coming off of that. Yeah. Um, the, the women that Kevin is with are talking about how beautiful she is and everything. And then Cullen looks back at Kevin. And instead of Alexander Cullen, Kevin sees the face of Lloyd Geddes, the math teacher from the very first trial. And it's like he's starting to feel the weight of all of the evil that he's allowed to run loose in the world as a defense attorney is kind of how it's portrayed. Mm -hmm. And so he gets up and has to like run out of the church. And he, while he goes to see Marianne, um, there's a back and forth. And part of the scene shows Milton wandering around the back of the church and looking at some of like the sculptures, looking at some of the artwork and then at one point, he, like, looks up at this stained glass window at the face of Jesus, and he, like, holds his finger out over the bowl of holy water, and he gets this, like, just joyful look of mockery on his face as he lowers his finger in and the water starts to steam. And that's <laughs> supposed to be, like, the big giveaway for anybody who didn't know yet. But, right. yeah, it's... um, um it's heavy handed it's on the nose but man if it's not (laughs) impressive in its way you know (laughs) like there are scenes in this movie that i'm just never i don't think i'm ever going to forget and um the more i talk about it the more i actually do kind of want to go back and look at it but i'm going to give myself a year (laughs) (laughs) but yeah do you have anything to say about this part before i get into the end game no i will say since we're kind of pointing out uh, running symbolism the the cigarettes in this movie also play i think an important part it's part oh, of yes. part of uh kevin's backslide is he starts smoking cigarettes and then you even he even has a conversation where he's like 
yeah, I had a cigarette. It's the first time in seven months. And you kind of, but like all the characters who are the bad characters are smoking cigarettes. They're drinking alcohol. They're doing these, these vices. Yeah. Yeah. Which, I mean, it's, it's really interesting. I would not call this a Christian film. Um, it was not made by any of those kinds of studios. It was directly, it was made by secular Hollywood. Um, it wouldn't hold up in, in any standard theology that I know of, but it also, I mean, it's obviously also not a Christian film because there's a lot of, you know, cursing and sex and violence in it, but, mm-hmm. and Christians are very homogenous with their, and, and I always hear the term Christian film as a marketing term. This would not ever be marketed as a Christian film, but it does have a lot of the way that the theme is kind of sort of laid on really thick does sort of smack of some of some of the Christian movies that I have seen, the the marketed Christian movies. Um, and what you just said is definitely an example of that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also around this time that um, Kevin before before he goes to the hospital to see Marianne, the next scene we see with Kevin is he is actually approached by Weaver, the guy from the Justice Department that Eddie Barzoon mentioned, um, played by a guy named Vito Ruginis, who I've never heard of before, but um, and he didn't look familiar to me at all. I think he he must not have been a um, I don't know. I'm not going to make any assumptions here about something I don't know anything about. But Mitch Weaver approaches him and tells him that your boss, this John Milton, you know, has his hands in everything that this firm is just one part of an international conglomerate of firms that's in arms dealing. Um, I don't know if he says human trafficking, but I wouldn't be surprised, mm-hmm. um, you know, toxic waste production or, you know, something bad to do with toxic waste, um, setting up, uh, uh, shady judges in South America to like further the drug trade. Um, he's involved in all kinds of things. He's got his fingers in everything. And at one point, Kevin just turns around. And he's like, well, what do you, you know, what do you want me to say? He's a lawyer, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> Mr. Lomax, no comment. I'll have something for your lid. I'm a friend of Eddie Barzoon. You don't know me, but Eddie mentioned your name, Mitch Weaver, justice department. Just taking out the funeral. Looking for you actually. I'm in a bit of a hurry. I need to talk to my wife. I just wanted to ask you off the record. I had a few questions about Eddie. Milton Shadwick Waters is a little more than a law firm, but then I assume you knew that. Vergata Holdings, I'm sure you've heard of it. London, Kinshasa, Karachi, arms brokering mostly. Then you've got Munza Deech, they're in Berlin, Jakarta. Chemical weapons and toxic waste. Then you've got Ivanical Limited, Moscow, money laundering for the Eastern Bloc. Kevin, it goes on and on and on. Look, Milton is into everything. Barzoom was coming in, Kevin. He was going to testify. DeSoto and DeValista, Panama. That's a firm that sets up bank accounts for judges all over South America. Huge drug cases, murder, everything. What the f*** do you want? He's a lawyer. Now stay off my back. And Weaver, at this point, is walking across the street. And um, he uh, gets hit by this big red truck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just um out of out of nowhere basically and um so that's you know that's a scene <laughs> then kevin goes to the hospital to see marianne and finds out his mom is there um and is actually reading the bible to her 
And while they're, um, while they're there, Pam comes in and, uh, uh, Alice starts to, starts to say something to Kevin about the last time that he said, you know, basically you were right. You know, you never got, gave me a chance to answer when she was in New York before visiting them. John Milton asked her if it was her first time in New York and Kevin never gave her a chance to answer. Well, here she tells him, no, it wasn't my first time in New York. Actually, the first time I was here and then Kevin kind of cuts her off and Pam comes in and they're all kind of talking. And then Alice asks Pam to excuse them. And she takes Kevin out of the room because she really needs to tell this story. And so she starts to tell him that while he was while she was in New York before, um, she was there for like this Baptist um, get together thing. Um, her dad was a preacher. Uh, Kevin actually mentions when Milton asks about his parents early in the movie that he never knew his dad and that his mom was a hard worker, preacher's daughter, uh, worked at the same poultry plant as long as he can remember, um, salt of the earth kind of person. Um, well, she says, you know, it was I was in New York. I was 16. Um, it was my first time really seeing anything of the world. And I was approached by this waiter. And that's when she gets cut off because they hear um, Marianne start to scream from her room. Well, the reason that she starts to scream is because um, Pam is in there and is trying to, like, do something with her hair. And... Uh, she shows him shows her this mirror and Marianne had made a line earlier in the film that she couldn't look at herself in the mirror that all she sees is a monster. And mm-hmm. she, again, it's kind of thematically um, supposed to indicate that she and Kevin are both, you know, turning into the people around them. But here Pam holds up a mirror so she can see. So Marianne can see what Pam did with her hair and Marianne doesn't want to look, doesn't want to look. And then she turns and she sees her own face and you see this look of relief cross her face. And then the mirror pans over to Pam and you see a demon. And so Marianne screams, hits Pam with the mirror. Pam stumbles out of the room. It's like, she attacked me. She attacked me. And Marianne closes the door and blocks it with a chair and um, this is what they heard. And so Kevin comes back and starts trying to get in the room, trying to break the window and get inside. But before he can do it, Marianne picks up a shard of the broken mirror, looks up at him and cuts her own throat. Mm-hmm. And Kevin gets in, holds her. Um, one of the nurses comes in and is like, you know, trying to bring her back, um, asking for the doctor and everything. Very intense scene. And then it cuts to Kevin and Alice just waiting, you know, um, in another part of the hospital. And Kevin's like, finish the story. And Alex, uh, Alice basically tells him, well, the waiter I talked about gave me attention. I wanted attention. And um, it was it was him. It was your boss, John Milton. And he's your father. Right. And so, yeah, that's um, the, the big the big twist, um, one of a couple that are coming hard and fast now at the end. Um, yeah. One weird thing is Kevin just kind of walks out. Nothing going on with Marianne, nothing going on with like her dying, no police. It's really, really odd. He just walks out and Pam is there. And um, 
is taking the whole thing very, very calmly, like eerily calmly. Um, and, uh, tells him that, uh, you know, I don't remember how it comes about that he needs to go see Milton, but that's where he goes. Um, and he's got Marianne's blood on him now. So now he's got the, the red on him. He's been kind of marked by it mm-hmm. as he's walking down this empty New York street, this like crazily empty New York street in the afternoon. Yeah. I was um, going to say this part was really cool. I really like to see, I, I don't know how they did it. I don't I assume it was actually yeah, New York, yeah. but yeah, I know it was filmed in and around New York, and so they must have just cleared off the street for, like, the time it took to shoot this. But it's crazy because yeah, it's just it's really dead. Cool. There's nothing there. Yeah. Um, and kind of long and short of it, I, I cannot do this scene justice. But what happens is that Kevin goes back to Milton's office, and Milton is there, and... Uh, Kevin confronts him and then eventually shoots him. Nothing happens. Um, you know, Kevin Milton gets shot, but just basically kind of eggs him on. Like, yeah, you got to. Shoots him with the gun he stole from Cullen. Yes, with the gun he stole from Cullen. Like, you got to, you know, hold on to that rage, all this, you know, yada, yada. And just really letting him, um, confessing who he is. You were right about one thing, Kevin. I have been watching. Couldn't help myself watching, waiting, holding my breath. But I'm no puppeteer, Kevin. I don't make things happen. Doesn't work like that. What did you do to Marianne? Free will. It's like butterfly wings. Once touched, they never get off the ground. No. I only set the stage. You pull your own strings. What did you do to Marianne? A gun? In here? What did you do to my wife? Well, on a scale of one to ten, ten being the most depraved act of sexual theater known to man, one being your average Friday night run-through at the Lomax's household, I'd say, not to be immodest, Marianne and I got it on at about five on. Yes! Wow! Yeah! Step on up, son! Come on, that's good! You gotta hold on to that fury! Yeah, that's the last thing to go. That's the final hiding place. It's the final fig leaf. Who are you? Who am I? Who are you? Never lost a case. Why? Why do you think? Because you're my father. I'm a little more than that, Kevin. What are you? Oh, I have so many names. See, call me dad. She knew it, so you destroyed her. You blaming me for Marianne? Oh, I hope you're kidding. Marianne, you could have saved her anytime you like. All she wanted was love. Hey, you were too busy. That's a lie. Hey, I'm on your side. You're a liar! No, uh, hey, Kevin, there's nothing out there for you. Don't be such a chump. Stop deluding yourself. I told you to take care of your wife. The world would understand. 
Didn't I say that? What did you do? You set me up. Who told you to pull out all the stops on Mr. Geddes? And more yet, the direction you took. You played me! It was a test, your test! And Colin, knowing he was guilty, you put that lying on the stand. You brought me in, you put me there. You made her lie. I don't do that, Kevin. That day on the subway, what did I say to you? What were my words to you? Maybe it was your time to lose. You didn't think so. Lose? I don't lose! I win! I win! I'm a lawyer! That's my job! That's what I do! I rest my case. Vanity is definitely my favorite sin. Kevin, it's so basic. Self-love, the all-natural opiate. You know, it's not that you didn't care for Mary Ann, Kevin. It's just that you were a little bit more involved with someone else. Yourself. I did it all. I let him go. Ah, oh, don't be too hard on yourself, Kevin. You wanted something more, believe me. I'm... You cannot keep punishing yourself, Kevin. It's awesome how far you've come. I didn't make it easy. Couldn't. Not for you. Or your sister. Well, half-sister to be exact. Surprise. And then bringing Christabella into the room and letting Kevin know that Christabella is actually his half-sister. Mm-hmm. And the whole plan, everything that he wanted, he's been watching Kevin, and now that he's brought him here, he wants Kevin and Christabella to bear the Antichrist. Um, that's his game. The, the Antichrist to so, head up their law firm, too, by the way. <laughs> to, oh, yeah, to head up their law firm and basically to take over, finish taking over the world. Yeah. He says, you know, the 20th century, nobody can argue it was mine. You know, the 20th century was mine. Satan saying this, you know, I ran the place. And now even more so, you know, like the, your your child will usher in the millennium. And he's like, the millennium's coming, which that is, again, a reference to Christian eschatology where – um, after a period of tribulation, which is in itself, oh, there's there's different interpretations of how um, the end times prophecy goes. But one thing that they all kind of share is there is going to be a millennium of relative harmony on earth where Jesus will rule in person from Jerusalem, will rule the entire world. And at the end of that thousand years, uh, Satan will be loosed one last time on the world and will fight with Jesus and Jesus will overcome him and then everybody will be happy forever. That's kind of it. And so that is the millennium that's, uh, that Milton refers to here. He goes on a long, long diatribe about the nature of the world, about the nature of God and, um, everything. I'm going to play a little bit of it here. I'm not going to play the whole thing because I think it's like 10 minutes long, <laughs> but yeah. I think we have to have to hear a little bit of it. And then when we come back, uh, since I've just been talking for five or 10 minutes straight, you can uh, talk a little bit about the end of the movie and what the heck you think is happening here. <laughs> <sighs> what do you want from me? I want you to be yourself. You know, I'll tell you, boy, 
guilt. It's like a bag of bricks. All you gotta do, set it down. Who are you carrying all those bricks for anyway? God? Is that it? God? Well, I tell you, let me give you a little inside information about God. God likes to watch. He's a prankster. Think about it. He gives man instincts. He gives you this extraordinary gift, and then what does he do? I swear, for his own amusement, his own private cosmic gag reel, he sets the rules in opposition. It's the goof of all time. Look, but don't touch. He's a sadist. He's an absentee landlord. Worship that never. Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven, is that it? Why not? I'm here on the ground with my nose in it since the whole thing began. I've nurtured every sensation man has been inspired to have. I cared about what he wanted, and I never judged him. Why? Because I never rejected him. In spite of all his imperfections, I'm a fan of man! I'm a humanist. Maybe the last humanist. Who, in their right mind, Kevin, could possibly deny the 20th century was entirely mine? All of it, Kevin! All of it. Mine. I'm peeking, Kevin. It's my time now. It's our time. This is some pitch, all this. You must need me pretty bad. What do you want? Well, Eddie was right. I want you to take over the firm. You and your sister. Is that it? No. She's ovulating right now. What? Your son is going to sit at the head of all tables, my boy. He's going to set this whole thing free. You want a child? I want a family. The Antichrist. <laughs> Whatever. But I have to volunteer. Free will. It is a bitch. Kevin, I need a family. I need help. I'm busy. Millennium's coming, son. Title five, round 20. <laughs> what are you offering? We negotiating? Always. Yes! Anything. What do you want? How about bliss, for starters? Instant bliss. Bliss on tap. <laughs> Bliss any way you want it. Oh, you're gonna have to do a little better than that. I'm just getting warmed up. You want more, don't you? You deserve more. How about the thing you love the most? Smile from a jury. Ooh, that cold courtroom just giving itself over. Bending to your strength. I get that on my own. Not like this. I take the bricks out of the briefcase. I give you pleasure. No strings. Freedom, baby. Is never having to say you're sorry. Why the law? 
Because the law, my boy, puts us into everything. It's the ultimate backstage pass. It's the new priesthood, baby. Did you know there are more students in law school than there are lawyers walking the earth? We're coming out! Guns blazing! The two of you, all of us, acquittal after acquittal after acquittal until the stench of it reaches so high and far into heaven, it chokes the whole lot of them. In the Bible, you lose. We're destined to lose, Dad. Well, consider the source, son. Besides, we're going to write our own book. So, yeah, those are some of uh, Milton's words. Um, and now, why don't you tell us the action that Kevin takes in response and what happens after that? So, he... Um I mean, I assume that it's it was in the clip that you played, but there was a lot of talk about free will and how mm-hmm. the devil, I, I guess, is not able to to change free will. And right. so you can sort of see the gears working in Kevin's head, and he's clearly not really not really interested in in this. In and this offer, yeah. Yeah, it was interesting that he can't, Milton says he can't make anybody do anything, basically, but he he influences them. He, like, he, right. he leads them to give in to their own desires, basically, mm-hmm. which... Uh, and that's been evidenced throughout the movie. Like, for example, exactly. the hair thing is, like, a great example of that. Anyway, Kevin is, I guess, his, his final act of rebellion is rather than acquiesce to this plan he he turns a gun on himself and commits suicide right in front of of them both which is like the 112th bullet shot from this gun at this point but uh <laughs> yeah which is definitely not what uh not what milton wants um yeah. you can see milton freaks yeah. out one cool bit here um at one point milton morphs back into like a young version of well, basically into Keanu Reeves. Yeah, it's um, like a hybrid of the two of them. And what they actually did is, and I don't know names here, so I apologize for that, but what they did is they took a face mold of Pacino in 1997. The costume designer or makeup artist or whoever it is, the director for this film, was a protege of the guy who had the same job on The Godfather and who happened to still have the busts that he used in that movie. So he got one of the busts of Pacino from The Godfather. (laughs) That's cool. And then he made a bust of Keanu Reeves, and he used those three busts to make this... this, you know, this uh, image or this uh, special effect of Pacino de-aging and then turning into uh, Keanu Reeves, which was really cool. Um, Also, the sculpture behind him, this is the point at which the sculpture comes to life. And throughout Mm -hmm. Milton's diatribe and through this whole scene, it's just writhing with these figures in, in Congress. But then at the end, when Milton starts to freak out because Kevin just killed himself... It you know the whole scene turns red and they start to look like they're in hell basically. Uh, it was a really really evocative scene. I thought it was really really well done. The effects here were were quite impressive for I think for mm-hmm. 1997. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and he, uh, he yeah. ends up like 
turning it uh turning her into a corpse too like with his Christabella yeah fiery rage that kind of radiating outward and whatever mummifies her yep yep and then I don't know what to make of this last part I have a theory that I'll share but tell me tell us about this last scene in the well film. it was also all our last just legal scene. a dream <laughs> it, you so after he commits suicide and all this stuff happens you kind of get pulled all the way back to the bathroom scene at the beginning of the movie. And something we didn't mention at the beginning is when he goes into the bathroom, for some reason, he takes his wedding ring off and sets it on the counter and then is oh, washing his face. Because he's going to be like splashing water in his face. And, you know, like some people take off their rings when they're going to wash their hands or something. So, okay. Yeah, I guess that makes yeah. sense. That, uh, that, that, that's what it is. And, and then he's like staring at his ring. And I guess he. I, I guess he retained this memory of what happened or something and sort of decides to take a different path. So he goes back into the courtroom and rather than, um, r- rather than, than defend the, the school teacher, he decides to uh, withdraw as counsel after this recess and this causes a big uproar in the courtroom and um again threats of disbarment which i i've I've actually been meaning to look this up and see if that's actually something that is on the table for lawyers because it happens now in multiple movies i really don't think that it is if you withdraw it's uh, some you mean they may not let you but I, i don't think moving to withdraw due to a conflict of interest is something that you would be disbarred for but um so then i don't know do you want to handle the last very little bit with the, the well i um, wanted to ask you yeah oh yeah actually you just you just dressed it so the way that the way that he does that um yeah so uh he has the response you would think to to marianne seeing marianne you know back in in the this early courtroom just fine you know perm and all uh, and um <laughs> as they leave yeah. the uh the reporter who i think his name is larry uh from what i'm seeing here in the cast list the Good reporter larry. who didn't didn't wash his hands who i mentioned earlier in the in the show <laughs> uh follows him out and is like you know you gotta you gotta give me a um an exclusive on this you know We got to talk, Kevin. You got to give me an exclusive. This is wire service. This is 60 minutes. This is a story that needs to be told. It's you. You're a star. Baby. Call me in the morning. You got it. First thing. Bye, Larry. And as he walks off, uh, Larry then morphs into John Milton, Satan, who says, 
Vanity. Definitely my favorite sin. Which is a callback to one of the many things he says mm-hmm. in his uh, his final speech. Um, also, want to say um, it's when he finds out that uh, Milton is Satan. That's when uh, uh, Kevin mentions the Paradise Lost line: uh, "Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven." Right. Which yeah. is like the iconic Satan line from that play. So from that that poem. Uh, but yeah, so that is the end. Um, what do you think is going on here? I have no idea. I've been. I mean, I don't. I, mean, I don't know if it's if it's actually a. And it was like it was like it was a vision type thing, or if maybe this was God actually like resetting. Kevin and giving him a second chance because of the sacrifice that he made, the self-sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, well, it's that's not, a good theory. It's, it's not explicitly said what it is in the book, but either way, it's um, definitely ends on an, an ambiguous, and I would, I would say uh, a dissonant note. It, it is not really in keeping with the feeling of the rest of the movie. It's a little bit too, like, yuck, yuck for me. But yeah. it, I don't know. It's weird. It's weird. But the Rolling Stones song in the credits is pretty nice. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, the ending, yeah, I was that, just kind of, at this point, I was kind of fed up with the movie, to be honest with you. And I was just like, <laughs> by the end, I was like, okay, whatever. It it it, it definitely snowballs uh, toward the end. And it gets, gets to be a real head scratcher. But um, but yeah, uh, since we're already kind of heading in that direction, why don't we go ahead and um, you ready to move to uh, move to our verdict? I'm ready. I'm ready to move to the verdict. All right. So uh, it is time to give the devil his due. Uh, <laughs> do you want to go first this time or do you want me to weigh in with my my rating first. I I was actually it's funny that you mentioned that because I was going to propose that you go first this time. So I think typically we do the legal verdict first, but I I uh for I guess for reasons that will I will yet I will reveal shortly. I, I will have you go first. Okay. Well, this one was kind of tough for me. Um, I enjoyed watching this movie for the most part, but on a reflection, I. I definitely wouldn't call it a great movie. Um, it's okay. It's very weird. <laughs> this movie is just bonkers. <laughs> it is. Um, there is some overacting, especially on the part of uh, Mr. Reeves. God rest his soul. He's very pretty, very nice. But sometimes, you know, he hams it up and not necessarily in, you know, a raw Julia in Street Fighter the movie kind of way. Mm-hmm. Uh, Charlize Theron also... Um, this is not on the level of her performance, her Academy Award-winning performance in Monster, uh, but she was still very young at this time. So I think this was this was right around the time that she did Trial and Error, so she was still really young. Um, Al Pacino, of course, really kind of steals the show, and I think because of his performance, I'm not going to go with a middle-of-the-road on this one like I usually would. I'm going to bump this one up to a 3.5. So, I mean, the plot holds together. It makes sense if you suspend disbelief, you know, because it's got the devil in it. <laughs> um, within that world, it makes sense. 
it's still a little odd. Um, and Milton's purpose for grooming um, Keanu Reeves' character in this role is a little weird and feels kind of forced in, which may be because it wasn't in the book. <laughs> um, but yeah, 3.5, I think, is a pretty fair rating for, for this movie. A generous 3.5, I would say. <laughs> Probably so. Again, it's it's Pacino that put it over the 3.0. Yeah. Um, well, are you ready for the legal verdict then? I, I am, and I'm actually kind of intrigued based on some of the back and forth we had on this one. <laughs> well, so the reason I was going to have you go first is I, I didn't want to poison the well by saying I did not like this movie at all. Um, I, after talking with you, I liked it more and I would even be willing to rewatch it because of all of the things that, uh, basically that I missed. And I don't know that I would pick up on them, even watching them a second time, but I may read up on the movie so that I would be prepared to notice some of the things, some of the Easter eggs and different messages and stuff. But, um, before we had gotten into some of that, this was easily my least favorite movie that we've seen so far for this show. And I do like Pacino. And actually he was, I think he's the only thing about this movie. I liked is, is Pacino being (laughs) intense and being Pacino-y. Um, and, uh, so, I mean, but you know, that's not my, my job here is not to rate the movie. It is to assess the legal, accuracy well before you get there why do you think it is that you uh that you disliked it so much compared to uh some of the other things that we've come across that's a good question i'm not i do like some horror movies and like i don't even have a uh like i'm not even above watching like slasher movies and just like gore movies and things like that and I, I mean, not that this was a slasher movie or, or a gore movie, but I'm just, I, I mean that to say that as like, I don't have like some high bar or I will only watch highbrow horror movies. Yeah. But for some reason, this just like, it made me uncomfortable and not in a way that I think was by design. It was like... <laughs> Things I just I just didn't I didn't enjoy sitting through it and watching it. The watching experience was just unpleasant, but not like I feel like not in the ways it intended. Not in a way, not not in a fun way. <laughs> right. Fair enough. And like, you know, the the parts where the characters have their hallucinations or whatever, that's all fine. And that didn't bother me or upset me. So the things that were supposed to be kind of creepy and weird were kind of creepy and weird, but they didn't like offend me. It's just, just like overall I just uh I didn't I did not like it. But maybe maybe I'm being too naive or something. Maybe that really the point of the movie was some of these things were and so maybe it was just work was just working on me, but <laughs> maybe we'll see. We'll see. So, as far as the legal verdict here, I was kind of try I try not to just go through and take a tally, but I I'm looking at my my up arrows and my down arrows. And if it was just a straight bean counting exercise, this would be a hard fail, a hard guilty. (laughs) And I think ultimately that's kind of where we come out on this. It has almost all of the same, the classic 
fails failures in these legal movies of the you know the walking in the courtroom the yelling at the witness the saying you're going to get disbarred for trying to withdraw the leaning on the jury stand yes <laughs> leaning on the witness, all those things so it's got mm-hmm. all of the classic mistakes and then it's got a couple yeah. of extra ones on top of that there were uh oh it's got the my my new pet peeve the never lost a case but it, it has some some one-off ones that aren't very accurate either there were there were a couple points that i thought were good like i liked that they had him come out as a jury selection specialist because i i know that that is a thing that exists i don't know how frequently it exists but there are people who do that and i think it is mostly reserved for big law firms big money involved cases or whatever so i can kind of buy that they would do that and um there were a couple of things that i thought they were if not good they were at least plausible but i think on the whole the the overwhelming weight of the evidence here is that uh devil's advocate is is guilty of crimes against the legal community the worst of worst of crimes well and considering that satan was pulling the strings behind the scenes right. yeah. i think that makes sense <laughs> yeah i mean uh, satan's involvement was actually a legally accurate part <laughs> oh man i love that that's the best lawyer joke i've ever heard oh <laughs> uh, well there you have it folks uh, the devil's advocate gets a 3.5 on our scale and is guilty of misrepresenting the legal field which uh, of course come comes across as completely surprising after after the two hours <laughs> preceding this judgment as punishable by hanging <laughs> yes <laughs> punishable by an eternity of torment without Pacino, <laughs> which wouldn't be so bad, maybe. <laughs> but, I'm going to start doing that. I'm going to start sentencing these films to punishments when they are guilty. I like that. I have to think of a creative punishment for Devil's Advocate. I like that idea. I mean, of course, the classic one for any religious crime would be burning at the stake. Okay. Well, then I sentence Devil's Advocate to be burned at the stake. <laughs> Uh, now I want to go back and wonder what you would sentence some of the other guilty ones for, like trial and error. <laughs> uh, trial and error, boy. I don't know. I'll have to think about it. That's. I think that's still the low bar for the season so far. And my cousin Vinny is still the high bar. <laughs> but that surprises yeah. no one, I'm sure. No. Well... Um, you and I have talked about what we're going to be doing for December this year, and I think I'm going to keep that in my back pocket for, for another month. But uh, that means it is your turn, since I picked our October movie. What would you like to watch during Thanksgiving month, the month of November? Let me pull up my my document that has my, my different li- movie ideas and see what's here. I realized after the fact that we never actually plugged this movie um, at the end of the Phoenix Wright episode, which is good because we were actually planning to watch a different movie at that time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I did plug this on BG Mania for a couple of weeks, so, you know, we'll see how it goes. I do want to give, while you look at your list, I want to give a quick shout out to everybody who has been checking out the show. Our numbers have been steadily growing as far as downloads go. And if you're liking it, please let us know. You know, reach out to us. Um, uh, we're going to give our Twitter handles here in a minute, but we're also on Discord, and the link will be in the show notes. Uh, you can find us there, and 
let us know what you've been thinking of this show. Will you? But regardless, we appreciate you listening. Rather than dwell on this too much, and the, since I have an, a not-ordered list, I'm just going to pick the one that's next on my list, and that is The Verdict. Okay. Tell us a little about this. What are we in for next time? Well, I know almost nothing about it. It's from the early 80s, and um, I think it is about an alcoholic lawyer, and I think he has a chance at redemption. And that is about all that I know. Oh, cool. Um, it's uh, written by David Mamet. Okay. And uh, Paul Newman is in it. I think he's the the lead. Oh, this is the one. I think my dad recommended this to me. Uh, he like goes up against the Catholic Church or something. I uh, I couldn't tell you. Maybe I, I think I think this is one that that Dad recommended to me at one point. So we'll see. But I know it's Paul. Well, Newman, I think so. yeah, having just having just pulled up on Wikipedia, it's something to do with Catholic Hospital. So I think that you that may be the one that ah. that may, may be it. So there you go. Maybe I can actually get Dad to listen to this episode. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, he doesn't really do podcasts, so that's that's why he doesn't know how they work. <laughs> yeah. But all right. Well, um, I don't really have anything to plug other than the usual stuff. Uh, if you like video game music, uh, you can check me out on BG Mania every week with Brian. And I also have a couple more episodes of very good music that I'm going to be doing with you, Kapow, before we wrap that episode, wrap that show up. Uh, very good music, a VGM podcast. Mm-hmm. There is a rumor that there may possibly be an episode sometime in the next some period of time from the dyad presents is that correct yeah it's still uh <laughs> i i have done very i it's 75 done and i don't think i've done much more than write a few maybe like a hundred more words since we i last talked about it so yeah it's on the list it's on the list it's on the list be on the lookout we'll definitely let you know when it comes out yeah <laughs> but we will be back at the end of november uh the monday after thanksgiving with the verdict and our verdict on the verdict. <laughs> In the meantime, like I said, you can find us on Discord and you can find me on Twitter at BGMPod. You can find me on Twitter at The Dyad. And uh, I guess that's that's going to do it for this. I'm, now I'm going to go play some Vampire Survivors until I'm ready to go to bed. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go to bed and then play Vampire Survivors. All right. Well, I guess until next time, I'm Bedroth. And I'm the diet. Case closed. The, the movie, movie bar. bar. Nailed it that time. I can feel it. Yep. It's going to be a good one. (laughs) One of these times I'm just going to draw it way out to throw you off. And I'm just being movie (laughs) bar. If we ever do a pirate lawyer movie. I was just just thinking that. (laughs) What do you think pirate law would be like? I mean, I guess there's Uh, there's maritime law. The law of the sea. Maritime law. There you go. That's Mm -hmm. what I was looking for. 
Yeah, actually, you know, we'll the, to... in this very movie we're about to talk about, when there there's a courtroom scene or a court, jeez, a boardroom scene where they're introducing everyone and saying their specialty, and one of them was maritime law, and I I actually laughed when I when I heard that. All right, well, I guess until next time, I'm Ben Roth, and I'm the Dyad. Thank you case for joining closed. us in... Oh, yeah, there we go. That's right, case closed. I'll just <laughs> sub in your thing there. <laughs> Thank you for joining All us right. in This Case is Closed, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> and scene. <laughs> <laughs>